0: If we wanted to improve things and we really wanted to improve things, it's not just about delivering a lesson around sexual harassment. It's about, well, what can we do with the school behavior policy? What can we do with the uniform policy? And who is that uniform serving? Does it help young people learn? If a young person says, I'm too hot, can I take my blazer off? No, you're not allowed to in lesson. What is that achieving? Do, you know, does the fact that I look we all look the same wearing a blazer in the lesson? help me learn geography or maths or whatever it is or is it the fact that I'm uncomfortable does that stop me learning and this is where we talk about kind of those broader conversations about what consent looks like and whether it's rights-based or not is education something we're doing to young people is it something that we encourage young people to be interested and questioned and you know it's it's a really big it's a completely different conversation but the problem is is we've got a system in schools which to a broad extent gives messages of non-consent, delivering lessons about how important consent is and then spending the rest of the day undermining it.
1: Welcome
0: to
2: Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, friends. Before we get into today's conversation, a quick word about the forthcoming Rethinking Education Conference, if I may. I'm releasing this episode on the 15th of July 2022, and in two days from now, at midnight on July the 17th, the early bird discount expires for the Rethinking Education Conference. This weekend, we are publishing the full lineup. We've got a new Glastonbury-inspired, or rather stole totally stole their design, Glastonbury stolen poster with an unbelievable amount of brilliant, brilliant people some of whom will be talking about consent a key issue in today's conversation among much else we're running an additional 20% discount for friends of the podcast if you enter the promo code REPOD20 R-E-P-O-D-20 all lowercase and if you get your ticket before midnight this coming Sunday you'll receive a total of an £18 reduction on the total ticket price of £50. So get in there quick. And if you live miles away, you can also access the conference online. Tickets for that are donation based because the videos will be publicly available a few months later to maximize reach. This conference is shaping up to be really quite special. We have mainstream educators, parents and carers, young people, unschoolers, homeschoolers, you name it, it's there. Please do come along if you can, spread the word if you can, And you can access that asynchronously, so there literally is no excuse for you not to attend this conference. (laughs) Unless you don't like the sound of it, of course, in which case, why are you listening to this podcast? Anyway, I'm going to stop talking now. The link is in the show notes. Thank you for your attention. Hello, you magnificent, statistically improbable works of wonder. Welcome to the final episode of Season 2 of the Rethinking Education podcast. It feels perhaps a bit grand to call it a season finale. Let's be honest, this is not Stranger Things, but it is rather a climactic episode in more ways than one. Today, I am speaking with Johnny Hunt, an independent sex and relationships consultant and the author of Sex Ed for Grownups, How to Talk to Young People About Sex and Relationships. This conversation was really quite a seismic one for me personally, and it's quite the conversation to end the season on. Johnny's book is absolutely brilliant, and I highly recommend it to literally everyone on the planet. Here are a couple of nice things that people have written about this book. Leah Jewett, the director of Outspoken Sex Ed wrote, "'Johnny Hunt knows his stuff. For years he's given dynamic sex education lessons to children and young people, Now, to bring adults up to speed, he has transcribed his down to earth approach into this informative, big hearted, open minded book. As parents, we have a lot to learn before we become comfortable talking openly with our digital native kids. Sex Ed for Grown Ups points us in the right direction. And Andy Phippin, professor of digital rights at Bournemouth University, wrote In this excellent book, Johnny Hunt explores the myths and challenges of speaking about sex and relationships and offers much sensible and practical advice around the topic. It will give readers the confidence to engage with these issues in a fact-based and young person-focused manner, and I would recommend it not only for parents, but also teachers of relationships education and the wider children's workforce. Quote. This conversation covers a wide range of topics, from Me Too and Everyone's Invited to Porn to FGM and the origin of the C word, which is fascinating, by the way. In particular, though, this conversation with Johnny Hunt shifted my thinking considerably around the issue of consent. You can probably hear towards the end of the conversation, around the two-hour mark, there's a bit where I'm struggling to formulate my thoughts into a question, and you can almost hear the gears grinding in my mind as the penny drops, The coercion is the problem. People often talk about consent in the context of sexual relationships, but very few people talk about consent within education more widely. Some do, certainly, including some future guests, but they are currently in the minority, although their numbers have just swelled by one at least, yours truly, because we really do need to talk about consent more widely in education. Indeed, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that we need a consent-based education system. I realize this places me in the minority and many people might think, how on earth might that work? And there are definitely lots of issues to pick through, the implications for curriculum, pedagogy, assessment and behavior, to name just four (laughs) absolutely massive issues. And we're going to dive into this in more detail in season three, But I think the core argument was expressed very well by Johnny Hunt at the top of the show. How can we expect young people to learn about consent in the context of a PSHE lesson or two, when everything else about their lived experience of education is one of coercion? Because there are endless examples of people behaving in really coercive ways in society – We see it most obviously in things like Me Too and Everyone's Invited and Everyday Sexism and the 56 MPs in Westminster currently being investigated for sexual misconduct, which is staggering in itself. But we also see it elsewhere in the rampant workplace bullying that takes place in Westminster again, but also beyond in things like widespread domestic violence, in online bullying and trolling, the dark money and the lobbying and war and all the rest of it. And when you consider that all those coercive adults were themselves coerced as children throughout their most formative years, how could it be any other way? Anyway, these are some of my emerging thoughts on the thorny issue of consent-based education. But this conversation was about much more than consent, and it really made me realise that relationships and sex education is perhaps the most important thing to get right in schools. For many years now, since very early in my teaching career, I've been a passionate advocate of high-quality PSHE education. Sex and relationships, drugs education, citizenship, government and politics, these things are arguably far more important than what often passes for a so-called knowledge-rich curriculum. But this conversation made me see more clearly than ever that relationships and sex education is perhaps the most important thing of all to get right in schools. By way of a heads up, we do use some strong language in this episode. It's not gratuitous, Each instance is justified, in my view at least. But just to be clear, this episode is probably not safe for work and you may wish to think carefully about whether you listen to it in the presence of young ears. Forewarned is forearmed, and so consider yourselves suitably forewarned. Anyway... I hope you enjoy this show, obviously, and I look forward to seeing you again in season three, the first episode of which will feature my forthcoming conversation with Professor Sarah-Jane Blakemore, the author of Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain, which is brilliant, as well as The Learning Brain, which she co-authored with Uta Frith, alongside many, many brilliant articles, and I am looking forward to that conversation, to say the least. Season two kicked off with Mary Helen Immordino yang And season three will similarly begin with a conversation with Sarah Jane Blakemore. So, something to look forward to. But for now, without further ado, I will hand over to my recent conversation with Johnny Hunt. Johnny Hunt, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Absolute pleasure. I've been really looking forward to to speaking with you. Uh, so so you have written this amazing book recently, as I'm sure you noticed, uh, Sex Ed for Grownups. And this is a topic that is quite close to my heart. I was a, a PSHE coordinator for many years, and I was very aware at the time that, that sex and relationships education is not something that is that he's done very well quite often quite frankly um and and your book is just brilliant i am absolutely you know really enjoyed reading it it's funny it's very research based it's insightful it's compassionate and it's still, like very wise and i just just huge congratulations on it I, I i think you've done you've done a stellar job
0: that's really kind i'm awful when people give me confidence i don't know what to do with myself about it which I'd I'm not quite sure what that means but it's the same when I do presentations and things and people go oh that was really good I'm like oh I I don't know (laughs) I literally do not know what to do um so I'm quite good at deflecting when it comes to that but I like the fact you said it was kind of compassionate I like I think that's really important because one thing that was really keen for me is it not to be kind of a rant about all the things that was wrong it's a trying to hold people's hands to kind of encourage them about why this is really really important it should be about embracing why we find it difficult um and why it's really really important without kind of shouting at people saying you're doing things wrong I'm not trying to teach anybody how to parent or how to you know I'm a parent and I've not got all the answers um you do your best kind of thing but I think it's something that is so so important but it is that kind of thing of trying to nudge people in the right direction and kind of go, yeah, I know this is really hard, but this is why, rather than rant at them.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it is important. And, and I know that we'll come on to this later, but just to sort of flag this at the start of this conversation, we're at this we're at this moment in time, or I, I wish it were a moment. This, this, we're in this period of time where there's just this, it feels like an unending stream of catastrophic things that are happening, like from the Me Too movement, or what the me too was obviously a positive move, but what me too represented to everyone's invited which was for people who aren't aware essentially like the me too of schools where where young people were were anonymously disclosing uh instances of sexual harassment and abuse um on a website and it just went viral and there was just this unending this, this what seemed like a tsunami of of, of evidence at the moment there are 50 odd mps being investigated for sexual misconduct there's been like suspensions and, and convictions and what have you recently and there's just so many problems that are that are very very deep-rooted and i'm not saying that it all boils down to to sex education in schools but um but this, the roots of it the, like, lots of the ideas that we talk about in 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 sex ed in schools, or don't talk about as well as we should do, especially around issues of consent. um See, I would argue with it that it does boil down to it because again, it's about what we think school is for, and
0: we we're the generation when we still call it sex education, which is I think it's really important that we do, but also is part of the problem in some regards is that now we call it relationship and sex education and so much of your development is about learning how you manage relationships both with your friends and with people that you become intimate with but also how you manage relationships with people in power um, your teachers things like that Mm. and how you manage your emotions in those settings and that is the core of absolutely everything uh, of your future happiness and your future endeavors sort of thing and that's what this part of the education is about it's about relationship education learning those sort of things so i think it is kind of the core and i think part of the problem is is that we treat rse relationship and sex education as an add-on yeah rather as the, the core that goes through school i'm i'm a big advocate and have been kind of ranting about it for a while um is that i think we should get rid of behavior policies i think we should replace them with relationship policies they're the same things but instead of focusing on how we dress or you know how we, you know, uh, there's so much in behavior policies is about school uniform, which drives me a bit nutty. Um, but instead, it's focused on how we treat people, which should be the core. And if you get that bit right, everything else follows, kind of thing. So I do think it's at kind of the heart. And kind of going back to the everyone's invited, as someone who works in relation to sex education, you would think that the biggest kind of push to in, make this something that whole school kind of approach and embed it in schools would be it rse becoming compulsory but it hasn't the biggest push i've seen is actually in response to every everyone's invited mm. i've had in the last 12 months i've had more interest in the schools going actually we really want to embed this in our school we want to look can you look at our policy can you do some staff training rather than just coming to do a one-off assembly to year nine sort of thing yeah so actually i think the everyone's invited has, has made more of a difference and the Ofsted review into it than anything else um which is kind of bonkers in a way
2: yeah well it was it just bubbled up didn't it it was like clearly something that was not being well addressed and the fact that it bubbled up and that it was a student voice-led phenomenon um is really interesting and I think possibly what gave it such power um and so We've gone in at the deep end there <laughs> uh, and we're going to we're going to come back to those because these are very serious, deep rooted issues that we need to talk about. But let's just come back to the book. So so it's called Sex Ed for Grownups. Why the title and what, what prompted you to write this book? Um,
0: it came about as a, oh, in a bit of a strange way um, because of what I do every now and again. There's a couple of publishers that send me kind of um, reviews to look at or various books or proposals and you have to fill in this long form and at the bottom it says have you got any ideas and one day i kind of went yeah i do and i did, just wrote a few like a paragraph going we should have this um it kind of comes from doing a lot of staff training and parent meetings where one of my sayings, one of the things that i say a lot is we've never been the children on the carpet and this idea that we've now got a generation of adults who are teaching young people relationship and sex education who've never had the information themselves so it's this kind of gap kind of thing is that you've got the adults who don't know what they're doing leaving the children who have got a better grounding than they have sort of thing and so what it's kind of come from a number of conversations off the back of this kind of thing is that there is that gap of How do you prep those people who are going to be talking to young people around sex and relationships? And that's not just parents, it's teachers, it's youth workers, social workers, it's anybody who is an adult who has a young person in their life. And that's kind of where the title kind of comes from, is this kind of we haven't had our sex ed yet and we need it sort of thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I know that you early on in the book, you talk about how you often you often start this conversation with adults by asking them, you know, what was your experience of sex education? Like my own one, as we spoke about offline briefly, was that I was at a Catholic school. <laughs> Say no more, really. You yeah. know, it was it was like non-existent slash just a disaster. Um there was talk of embarrassed talk of the the, the what was it called? The family planning method. and that, And that was it. Which is basically like try not to have sex when you're likely to to conceive. Like that seems to be as far as they would go. Um, and so, um, maybe you could share some examples. Like, what's the general feel that like, that you get when you when you ask that question?
0: You kind of get two responses. One is the I didn't have any, or what I had, I can't remember. Um, so it's so insignificant, it didn't exist. Or the other one is kind of a embarrassed almost trauma response that people have to some horrific thing that happened um either with the a teacher who was really uncomfortable who shouted at everybody or just feelings of complete embarrassment um but usually it comes down to one or two lessons um one around kind of puberty, and one around kind of maybe a condom demo depending on what generation you were um people quite often remember videos they were shown And again like that's my generation i talk in the book a bit about um do you remember those tvs that used to come in the massive cabinets and it literally took six small children to push it into the (laughs) library where you'd sit and watch it and it had this weird sun visor thing on top and in those days for some reason no teacher had ever been taught how to use the vcr and they would all be (laughs) faffing with things and the tape hadn't been recorded and you got all these you know children sat on their chairs you know knowing that they're going to watch a video and getting a bit anxious and excitable while the video took an age to rewind and then they kind of press play on a video that just destroy your entire childhood. It just, there's so many awful ones. And we've seen TV shows about this of kind of sex education videos that have been produced over time. And I was in a school not too long ago that still had a DVD that had, do you remember Zig and Zag from the big breakfast? Oh yeah. They did one. Um, <laughs> and this school was still using this oh, in goodness. primary school. So if you think about how old Zig and Zag must be. It's, it's quite scary. Um, how awful that, kind of is um a lot of people would have the boys would be sent out in the field to play an extra game of football while the girls had a secret chat with the school nurse that kind of stuff yeah um there was a birthing video that's the one that goes around quite a lot but yeah it's it's never occasionally you'll get someone who goes my mum's a midwife and so i had this at home but it's very rare that you have any sort of particular formal education around it in school that was supportive or positive or non-horrific
2: yes yeah and so recently finally after years of going back and forth and back and forth PSHE was was made statutory um which is sort of a baby step in the right direction but my sense from working in schools is that often it still isn't like it, not, that hasn't really changed in terms of practice. When I when I took over as a PSHE coordinator, um, the the PSHE was taught for those of you who listeners who may not be aware PSHE it goes by in many different variations on that acronym. I think it was PSHCE when I was when I was doing it. It's personal, social, health, citizenship, economic education. It was just people were adding new things to it all the time. And when I took it over, it was taught for one lesson a week by form tutors. Um, and there was like 30 or 40 form tutors in the school. And so there was 30 or 40 different teachers of PSHE and it covers such a wide range of stuff oh, yeah. from like proportional representation and different forms of government to like economics and budgeting, and drugs, education, sex and relationships, education, and especially in those last, last two categories, drugs and sex education or relationships and sex education, um, there's so much like really technical specialist knowledge that you that you need to know in order to in order to do that well, um, and even you know like so soon we we got this down to a team of sort of five or six people who were really who were trained by the local healthy schools team, and we were given up to date information about, for example, you know like whatever morning after pills are available and all the different very very various forms of contraception, which is a very fast moving field. As well as drugs, um, you know the drugs that are available and, and the language that young people are using, and unless you are taking this really seriously and you have people with an eye on it and who are really who are really have up to like, date information on where young people can go for for confidential free advice and so on, um, that we I think that it, that it, I think that you mentioned offline you were saying that if you if you do this stuff badly it's sort of worse than not doing it at all in a way. Yeah,
0: I've I've seen some horrible things over the years. I remember. I used to work for a a local authority project, like a youth work project that we used to go into schools. And there was a a school nearby where um, I'd been in a few times and we'd actually been asked to go assess this other kind of organisation that we're going in to do pregnancy choices workshops. Um, And this particular class in this school I'd been in a few times before, and there was this fabulous young lady um who was just like really gobby and had all these opinions and she was brilliant. She must have been a nightmare to teach maths to, but she was brilliant in these sort of lessons. And um this lady had come in to do this session around pregnancy choices, but obviously it was a complete pro-life um sort of demonstration. Um, and this girl stuck her hand up and she kind of went, Oh um, so I get that you're pro-life. I get that completely, but if I was raped, what would you want me to do then? And this lady without Taking a beat said well we've had one violent act let's not have another was her response and you kind of go in that that's really, that's awful you know um and what you're doing is preying on people who are vulnerable and that's not okay um there are so many kind of awful attitudes around sex and relationships to you know if you're pro-life you get to be pro-life but what you don't get to do is put your values onto other people what you need to have is the skills to be able to kind of go well some people think this and some people think that and you have to make those decisions because it's you that has to live that life sort of thing. So it needs to have that nuance and you need to not blame and shame young people. Cause when we do that, that's when really bad things happen. But yeah, you're absolutely right when it comes to schools is that RSE or PSHE, both of those, there's so much in there that is technical. You need knowledge, but also that you need to be delicate and tender with, with how you kind of approach it in a way that you don't, Hurt, shame, or damage people that might already be traumatised. Um, you have to tread very carefully and know how to manage those topics. But equally, there came with the new guidance, there came no extra funding. There was, but it, it worked out as about fifty quid a school. Which what does that pay for? Yeah. You know, and the training that was uh, offered by the DFE was very superficial, without any depth to it, and it had no sort of idea of how to deliver any of this a lot of it was kind of left up to schools and as you say some schools do drop down days where they have a load of guests in um and that's something that i do i go into schools and do um you know talks with young people um they have a drop down day and they'll have a drugs worker a sexual health worker someone from road safety someone from you know the police team come in and you go on a carousel for year nine you know one of those days yeah some schools have extended tutor period Which again, if if it's delivered by the tutor and you're uncomfortable with the topic, it's so easy to give out notices, do the register, shout at someone for wearing their coat wrong or, you know, and then suddenly you run out of time. You don't have to talk about um, sexual assault or CSE or whatever it might be. Um, You've managed to run out of time for it. Um, You're asking a lot of people to to deliver a specialised subject without any skills or knowledge trained skill you know i'm not saying the teachers don't have skills because that's not what i'm saying at all but without that additional support and that additional training that you need to be able to be confident quite often in my experience going into schools there's there's kind of two things that happen you'll have the enthusiastic new person who comes in and says oh i think this is really important for whatever reason to them and they put in so much effort and so much work writing schemes of work and because that's the other thing is that if you're a lead for maths or english or geography you get time to plan your lessons that's scheduled in yeah you don't tend to get that with pshe and so it's all done off kind of goodwill off their backs they'll find new speakers to come in they'll find curriculum online they'll work with organizations like the pshe association or you know kind of um, Brooke and you know those sort of people and and gather as many resources as they can put something together and as you say, they give it out to their form tutors and some will do it really well and some will do it really. I literally walked down a corridor where one classroom was having a debate around abortion rights and the other one was doing a word search. It was the same lesson.
3: Yeah.
0: And you can just tell the difference of who was confident and who wasn't sort of thing. And also what young people would get out of those conversations.
3: Absolutely. So, so go it's on. it's uh, it's
0: just kind of a minefield. All Or the other thing that happens is you'll have this enthusiastic new teacher who comes in and, and tries really hard but gets very little support so gets burnt out quite quickly people you tend to go through PSHE coordinators quite quickly in schools um because it's just a thankless job and you do it by yourself and I've met so many brilliant ones over the years who just do some fantastic work. and you kind of um used to say about um my aunt is that she can make a dinner out of a dishcloth that sort of thing is that you know you do so much with so little yeah um And or you get the other one where you weren't in the meeting, so it's now you that's leading on this. You've got no interest in it, no expertise, but it's now the maths department that run PSHE across the school for whatever reason, and you've got a group of teachers who are kind of going, you know, sort of thing. It's it's kind of hilarious almost. But we wouldn't do it with any other subject. It's it's so bizarre. It
2: is, and it is like like we were talking about earlier. We're we're seeing these huge problems across society and i agree with you i i think that it does boil down to this and it's been overlooked for too long and i don't understand why we, you don't have specialists why you can't train as a pshe teacher because some people really are passionate about it and really love it and for other people it's absolutely out of their comfort zone and they were like i trained to teach geography i just want to teach geography this is not this is not for me sort of thing and so and that should be fine, you know. Like you shouldn't be asking all all form tutors to be delivering this this very very difficult challenging um, lesson. Um, and often, yeah, like you say, often it isn't. It doesn't even get a place on the timetable. It's done through drop down days and so on. And I know that we'll come on to consent. Later on, but you know, like if like to have the odd like some some expert comes in from from outside and does a drop down day and they talk about the importance of consent, but then the whole rest of your experience of school is very coercive. Yeah. um It's not surprising that people don't really take on board that that lesson around consent when your no, experience it... of life is is one of coercion.
0: And like, it's great me coming in and doing an hour. Um... And there is a massive benefit for that, and for me, drop-down days are great. I can go into a school and talk to the whole year nine in a day, and maybe year ten as well. And you know, that's that's it done. Um, so from a finance point of view, it's much cheaper as well. Um, but yeah. I'm not there the next day. I'm not there the week after. And the idea is is that you're supposed to be raising issues that you you know getting young people to think about things, and they want to come back and ask questions. And it's quite nice when you go to there's some of the schools that I work in where example there's one that i'm working at the moment i've been working with the year nine groups and i'm working on my way around the year but before i do that session i have a drop in and so you get pupils that you've done assemblies to or you've done sessions with maybe even last year popping in and going do you remember when you said this and having a chat and that kind of unscheduled time is really really important for people to be able to come and ask questions Mm. but it's very rare that you have the facilities to do that as a guest speaker you need it needs to be kind of both and I said earlier on that I don't think that RSC should be taught. It's better to be kind of not taught at all than taught badly.
3: Yeah.
0: However, um, years ago, and I talk about this all the time. Is when I do staff training, when people say, "Oh, you know, it's not." I I find it really uncomfortable. I can't talk about that, and and I get that. And I'm I'm a big fan of not making people do things that they feel uncomfortable with or doing things badly. However, um, if you work with young people, you need to be able to talk to them about the issues that are relevant to them. So if you're going to be a teacher working in a secondary school, you need to be aware that young people have got an emotional relationship and you know other problems that they'll come to you with. Um, I was on some training years ago about bereavement. And it, this kind of always stuck with me, this one kind of moment that happened. And I can't remember anything about the day at all, but I remember going back into the hall. and It was one of those kind of plenaries that they do at the end where the there's kind of people ask questions the panels of people have talked and this male teacher stuck his hand up and he went right i just want to say thank you for today it was you know it was really interesting to talk about all this sort of stuff but the more i've been here today however fantastic i think it is is that i'm not the right person to talk to a young person if they've had a deaf and fact i wouldn't know what to say and the lady who was delivering the training, she nodded and she kind of went oh okay yeah i don't give a shit was her response it was the best response i've ever heard And i was like and there was this kind of shock silence. She said, well, I neither do young people. Young people will come to you because there's something about you as a teacher that they think you're the right person to listen. You can make a cup of tea. You can go, oh, sorry, that's really awful. And just listen. We've got to get past this idea that an intervention is you doing something. You just sat and giving a young person time right. to talk to you and go, that's really awful. Everybody can do that. You don't have to have the answers, but what you do need to be able to do is listen and then go, I know somebody who can help you. And if you're getting into teaching and you're not prepared to do that, why are you teaching? (laughs) Why why do you want to work with young people? And that's the same in social work. It's the same in youth work. And so this, this kind of balance of you don't have to deliver a lesson, but you need to be able to have an open door where young people can come in and say, I need help. You know, or this is what's bothering me or this is what's on my mind. You don't have to have the answers. But you can make a cup of tea. Everyone can do that, mm. and, and I think that's the, the kind of difference is that you don't have to be the expert. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to stand at the front and deliver an hour long lesson about sexual exploitation or consent. But you do need to be able to have an open door policy where young people could come and talk to you. And however awful it is when a young person comes and discloses something to you, but they've come to you because there's something about you that they like that resonates in them. So it's a compliment. That's how you need to kind of take it, is that you've made a connection with somebody. There's a,
2: there's a sort of a unifying theme here of like, just like people, like this stuff is difficult. It is difficult. And you can understand why that teacher would raise that concern. And I, I also agree that it's a good response to say, actually, you know, we're not asking you to to move the world here or to fix a child's broken heart. It's just to be a pair of ears. But there, there seems to be a like an unwillingness to have these conversations um, and I wonder, so so, so later on in the book, so or quite early on in the book, in fact, there's a, there's a chapter called Heads, Shoulders, Knees and Toes, Mind the Gap. Yeah. And, it, and it starts, just for the benefit of listeners, I'll just read the, 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 how that chapter opens because it's really interesting. It goes, Fairy Mary, Twinkie Dinky, Woo, Pee Noo Noo Mini, Flossy Foof, Todger Tiddler, Widgy Winky. While this might sound like the cast of In the Night Garden, these are some of the many cutesy pet names we give our children's genitals. Perhaps you prefer the old classic tuppence or flower or the all encompassing front bottom or bits or the forever mouthed and whispered down there. Have you ever stopped to think why as parents we're so uncomfortable using the real names? What's with all the weird and bizarre names? You don't call your hand your wave wave or your foot your walkies. Um. That And so that, that's fascinating. And it's not something that I'd ever really thought about before and or that I'd ever really thought was was a problem before. Um. Maybe before we go on, actually, can you just ex- can you just sort of expand on that? Like, why do you think this is a problem?
0: I was um, I got the opportunity to go to Holland um, with the local authority. They were looking at kind of positive, like um, examples of relationship and sex education. They wanted to do some work um, in my local authority where I lived at the time, and we had this session uh, around primary school programs from Rutgers. Um, which is almost like the Dutch, it's a private organization, but does public health sort of work, um, especially around sexual relationships all around the world. Um, And we had this talk by um, the lady who led this program and she talked about the song, Head, Shoulders, Knees and Toes, and she literally kind of acted it out. And I do this with, as I introduce, talking about private parts with children now, um, is we sing Head, Shoulders, Knees and Toes, and you kind of go heads, shoulders, knees, there's this big gap between your shoulders and your knees where we we don't it's kind of like this is the taboo area we don't mention it and it's so fascinating when you you go into kind of primary schools infant schools and you say to children right so what about all this stuff in the middle what's there and they go that's where your belly button is and you go oh yeah and that's where you make your poo yeah okay and you know it's all the stuff that you're not allowed to talk about and it's there's one really important thing is that if you don't name something, you make it taboo and you make it shameful. If you're not allowed to mention it, it becomes something. It's, you know, obviously the Harry Potter book says he must not be named or I say she must not be named. Is we're very particular around genitals that we're not allowed to name them. And by not naming them, it makes them shameful. And that's a problem. And this is a massive kind of issue. From a safeguarding point of view, we know that children who can name their private parts. Um, are less likely to be abused that's what the evidence tells us but again um, we're in this very strange situation where i go into schools and i'll talk to year threes and i'll be able to say that girls have a vulva and boys have a penis there's no shame and there's no red faces but the tear in the corner can't stand up and is bright red because they're naughty dirty words sort of thing which they're not Um, and so it goes back to this adults not having those sort of lessons kind of thing. But equally, it's such an important thing to start using the correct words. It doesn't mean that we can't have the other names as well. But if somebody comes to you, if the child says, you know, my privates are sore or my bits are sore, what does that mean? You know, we need to have some sort of specifics. And again, we need to be specific enough between vagina and vulva as well. The vagina is the inside, the vulva is the outside. If you're sore on the outside, you could have, you know, maybe you didn't wipe properly, maybe you've been scratching. If you're sore on the inside, that's probably a bit more of a concern. There's something else going on. And so it's that thing of having giving children the chance to be able to ask for help and to be able to do it in a non-shameful way. Whereas if it's shameful, we're not allowed to. And that plays out. We know that adult women aren't going for smear tests because they're embarrassed about their private parts, because they smell funny, because they look funny, because they're not like the ones they see on telly, because they've not shaved. That's an issue. But that's not an issue that started when you were 40. It's an issue that started when you were five. Yeah. And so we can see how that plays out. But equally, it also plays out when it comes to, you know, uh, pornography. It comes, plays out when it comes to managing your relationships and sex. How can you can take control of a sexual encounter if you don't know how your body works? And the way we frame these messages, we treat girls so much differently than we treat boys. You know, There's this expectation that boys, all boys know they have a penis and they wave at anybody who will look sort of thing because it's there, it dangles, whereas girls' bits are all tucked away. So we kind of don't mention them because you can't see them. You can't, you know, they're not there with us. Ignore them sort of thing. So it's really interesting how that plays out, these messages that bodies and sex and pleasure are for boys and not for girls and where those messages actually start. And it's as early as those conversations about naming private parts
2: yeah yeah thank you and there, there, there's a sort of touched upon a, a separate topic that comes up elsewhere in the book about you know teaching young people that that sex is something that's enjoyable and there was a, there was an example of a guy who was in some sort of session and he sort of spoke out and was like I don't want my daughter to know that you know and it's like wow what's going on there you know what Yeah
0: that was a, a conversation about this in the primary school program that for the local authority yeah, a few years ago there was this when it describes making a baby reproduction. It says that sex can feel nice. That was it. Just the word nice, nothing else. There's no pictures, no diagrams or anything. And um, there was this really interesting incident, um, and I remember it because I was supposed to be going to see the Foo Fighters at Wembley, and Dave Grohl had fallen off the stage, the, you know, two weeks before or something. So instead of being at Wembley, um, I was at a little village school. Having a conversation with some angry parents. Um, so, a very different kind of. And we were talking about it and we were trying to unpick why they were so uncomfortable about it. And we were explaining why that was there and why it was important. Um, and I said, his dad kind of just lost it and he smashed his hands on the desk and he just went, I don't want my daughter to know it feels nice. And then he kind of, he just stopped and he kind of, you could see the process going, Oh, that's a problem, isn't it? You kind of, nobody had to say anything you just kind of heard what he said and it's really interesting what we'll tell boys but what we don't what we tell girls and one of the big examples that i talk about it all the time is puberty we teach about puberty and as part of puberty we teach that you it's about getting your body ready for reproduction it's about boys have to start producing sperm and girls have to start releasing eggs but the way that's framed once we've got past the spots and the you know smelly bits and pubic hair and all that kind of stuff is when we're talking about producing sperm and eggs, boys get taught their sexual responses. Boys get taught they get an erection, that the head of the penis feels sensitive when they get an erection. And if they stimulate it, it will feel nice, and sperm will swim out through their penis. And we'll talk about wet dreams. We don't tell girls that they have wet dreams too. We don't do that. Boys get sexual responses and orgasm, and girls get periods yeah menstrual cramps and tampons yeah why are we not teaching girls about their sexual responses um, and the problem is is you then get girls who are in year 10 and year 11 who's nobody's talked to them about discharge and why they have those stains in their underwear you'll have girls in year 10 who don't understand their own sexual responses and understand what their body needs to do to get ready for having sex and then we wonder why sex is uncomfortable or painful or why it's not something it's something that happens to girls not something that is mutual um and again that's all very heteronormative because that's what we do in schools we talk about reproduction we don't talk about sex yes so it's not always very inclusive um but that seems to be the narrative is we set you know girls private parts are sacred but icky and we don't talk about them um whereas boys bodies it's you, you kind of it's all for them there's no responsibility there girls get the responsibility and the pain and go and boys get the pleasure um that's how we set it up from right in primary school all the way through and that kind of needs to be addressed
2: yeah yeah absolutely and and so just, just, just to come back to the naming thing there, there's there is a there's an interesting bit in the book where you're talking about... like you, you, There's a bit where you're, you're describing female anatomy. You're talking about like, the vulva is comprised of labia major, labia minor, clitoris, vaginal vestibule, mons pubis, Bartholins glands, and then go, goes on, and then you say, I'm well aware that this is the literal definition of mansplaining. <laughs> um, if you happen to be a woman reading this... Um, you know, But unfortunately, this needs to be said. It's not uncommon for me to deliver training to rooms full of middle-aged women who don't know the anatomy of their own body. To be clear, this isn't a criticism of them, but the state of affairs we find ourselves in due to poor sex education. And you talk about a recent uh, study that was done by a, by a cancer charity that asked women to label an anatomical diagram of female genitalia, and for, more, 44% of them were unable to correctly identify the vagina and 60% failed to correctly label the vulva. Um, And then you ask this, this raises the question, how can a woman take control of her body, let alone her health, if she doesn't even know the basics of how it works or what it's called? Um, And there's some separate, there's there's also some really interesting stuff about the word word vagina and vulva and the the origins of these words, which listeners might find of interest. And I'll I'll just share a bit more if I may. You, You go on to say, I do think it's telling that we used to choose to use the word vagina as the all-encompassing term for female genitalia. The word vagina was first used in medical textbooks in the 17th century and comes from the Latin term meaning scabbard. As historian Dr. Kate Lister explains in her book, A Curious History of Sex, the word vagina literally means the home for a sword. You can tell that early medical textbooks were written by men. Um, And likewise, the vulva was like, it comes from the Latin meaning womb, baby-making again. And then you go on to say that Dr. Lister instead champions the word cunt, which arguably you go on to say is one of the most obscene and hated words in the English language. And I, I suspect that some people listening may have been triggered by just to yeah. even hear, that, hear that word in an in a education podcast. But you say it wasn't always so. Favoured by Shakespeare and Chaucer, cunt is the oldest term we have to refer to female genitalia, being several thousands of years old. The word is so old, we don't know for sure where it derives from, but we do know that it has Proto-Indo-European roots and its meanings include woman, knowledge, creator or queen. You literally couldn't get a word with a more powerful feminist history and it's therefore interesting to note that a word of female power is now used as a curse um, that's that's considered to be, you know, as offensive a word as as uh, as as we have, um, which is a fascinating bit of, of linguistic history and just shows sort of how deep-rooted this whole thing is this this goes back hundreds it's really well it's really years.
0: interesting to see where the flip was in time so first of all kate lister dr kate lister she's based up in leeds she's brilliant she does um um she's got the twitter handle the whole review, and she does she's a sexist <laughs> um she's got her own uh, podcast that's just come out recently and she's she's brilliant she's really interesting and i'm a really big fan of her work and so that's me telling you what she said that's not
2: you know sure
0: um just to be really clear where that kind of came from um But I think it is really interesting is we have this idea that sex is a masculine thing. That's fairly new. Before, you know, the witch trials were around this idea that women were more sexual than men. The reason that Greek and Roman statues have small penises is because they wanted to hide that because that was seen as feminist, as a feminine sort of idea to be sexual. It was men were about reason. Women were about the body um, and about desire. It's only fairly fairly recently that we suddenly had this flip that these things have happened right um a lot of that kind of comes from the the influence of the church really is that's the historic history of it and suddenly cunt instead of it being this playful fun um empowering word became an insult um at the same sort of time that women were kind of flipped as well in that sort of way right um and it is a means of kind of control and yet it's seen as a, a misogynistic word I was at a conference yesterday when somebody said it was misogynistic.
3: Right. Um,
0: whereas actually it couldn't be any further from the truth sort of thing. But it's, it's like the most obscene word that we have now. And it's really interesting that a word that means female empowerment um, is now an insult. It's a really interesting thing to see why we think that. And it's, it's a really interesting conversation to have with people um, where they think that kind of comes from
2: absolutely and so, so so this sort of this like sensitivity um around talking about foofs and, and willies and whatnot and and the sensitivity that some teachers have around around having these kinds of conversations i'm wondering to what extent is this a british thing there's that whole sort of like no sex please wear british attitude that it's sort of just like we don't talk about this and and i think that there's potentially a grain of truth in that and and but i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it and you, you mentioned a moment ago that you went to holland and holland is considered to be quite forward thinking in terms of their attitudes to to relationships and sex education and they have quite quite positive outcomes for young people low rates of teenage pregnancy and and sexually yeah, transmitted infections and so on is that is that fair to say or is that a bit of a caricature i think i, well,
0: I think i think it's both um i think the difference is between places like holland is that they looked at the evidence and they said we need to do something to make this better this is what the evidence says and then they did it um holland's got a massive kind of almost like bible belt that goes across the middle of it of really really conservative views but what they did is they did the public relations they did those conversations with parents and said the reason we name these private parts is because it will keep your children safe and people went oh well that makes sense it makes me uncomfortable But it makes sense. And actually, when you get into rooms of parents and have these conversations about why we use these words, people go, Oh, yeah, I find that difficult. And my, you know, my mom, grandma's not going to like it, but I'll talk to her about it, sort of thing. And there's this kind of, I feel uncomfortable because we're not used to using those words. Like we do it in the kind of Miranda way of going, you know, we we whisper it rather than say it out loud. Um, Whereas children don't bother. You know, I've never had a young person. Uh, in primary school get upset by using those words they get giggly to start off with and then use them and then very quickly it's just another part of your body
3: yeah and
0: then that taboo is kind of gone the adults still you can see them kind of flinch every time they say it um so when i do stuff training in primary school one thing i I said right your homework tonight is stand in front of the mirror and say the word vulva say it again vulva because most adults have never said that word ever let alone into a room full of children right um, and it is that kind of, you know, stuttering, sort of uh, getting over that, that sort of embarrassment and shame. Um, and so I think, I think it's not only a British thing. I think you you need to look at education from this kind of broader colonialist sort of perspective. A lot of the very traditional views around sex that we have from other parts of you, or other parts of the world, come from colonialistic history. Is There was a lot of cultures actually were far more, had far better rules around empowerment to women and around sexuality and gender identity, much, much better. And then we went with our flags and, you know, kind of put in the British Christian school sort of idea. Um, And so even things like FGM, that was practiced in the UK. It was a medical procedure to stop women being sexual. And then we exported that around the world and then complained that people do this barbaric thing that we introduced.
2: Was it really? That's
0: news to me. That's uh, what some of the evidence suggests. Yeah. That we were certainly doing those sort of operations and some of the earliest records that we have around FGM are from British medical journals. Wow. Which is, again, is when we think of colonialism, that's, that's what we are actually talking about. Um, and we look around the world at countries that are still, you know, have death penalties for for same sex marriage or for same sex relationships. Yeah. That came from us. Their cultural history is not that, it's us. Um, And it's about understanding that that's what colonialism was. And so I think there's a much broader kind of aspect of our place in the world, in the UK, and our influence of how we've influenced education around the world um, and how some messages have stuck. Um, And That's kind of our fault. Um, And so I think there's some really interesting conversations. If you look at the history of sex, um, it's really interesting to see where some of these things come from um but again it was this idea of we kind of the construction of childhood with the middle classes um childhood was this idyllic thing to be protected and so it had to be innocent this kind of idea um and as those ideas came around in like uh, the 19th century sort of idea and well 17th through 19th century with middle classes you've got this idea that this almost kind of secret garden idea of what childhood should be like. And with that came this removing children from the adult world and protecting them in this weird bubble. Um, Childhood has never been innocent and innocence and ignorance aren't the same thing anyway. Um, And so I think that's where some of it comes from is this trying to keep children, children and protect them. Um, Protect this adult version of what childhood should look like this idyllic version um and then also you've got the kind of this kind of dualism between children are sinful but children are innocent as well that comes with it as well that religious sort of notion and so i think that's where it kind of comes from but actually i say all the evidence says is that if we name those parts and we talk about them children are protected i say innocence ignorance not the same thing
2: yes yeah that's it and in the name of protecting children just by sort of by by not talking about stuff or by promoting abstinence, I mean, it's a bit like the sort of the just say no approach to, to drugs yeah. education just doesn't work. Like the second that you say just say no, you just make yourself irrelevant and the kids will stop listening to you because they will know people outside of school who've taken drugs and who talk about the positive sides of drugs. And unless you're able to have that more honest conversation... Um, then you just make yourself irrelevant and, and, like you say, you can do more harm than good. And in the book you talk about, about abstinence-only programs of sex education yeah. that have been shown to be ineffective in delaying the age of sexual debut and you cite references to back this up, or reducing the frequency of sex or the number of sexual partners that that young people have. And also, young people who've been through abstinence-only programs are less likely to use protection when they do have sex the simple be- reason being that you can't plan for something that you don't acknowledge is going to happen. And you are going to say the same can be said for sexual assault. You can't effectively prevent sexual assaults if you don't first acknowledge that young people have a right to have sex and, and to prepare for it safely.
0: Yeah, I think, it's, again, it boils down to this idea of, say, what the Dutch do, they follow the evidence, is having this conversation, what do we want for our young people? what What do you want their first experience to look like? And what are we doing to prepare them for it? And the problem with abstinence only, as I say, is that if you're told you're not allowed to do something, you can't think about it. You can't plan for it. You can't go to your local sexual health service. You can't think about what contraception you might use. You can't think about where you might feel safe. You can't do any of those things because you're not allowed to do it. Um, Choosing not to have sex is a sexual project in itself. And it's a positive one for some people, not for everybody. But it's still something you need to plan you need to think about what you're going to do in different situations but if you're not allowed to have sex you can't forward think any of these things you can't be responsible it's reactive rather than proactive Mm -hmm. in that sort of way and we do most sexual health reactively and so it has worse outcomes so as a parent whatever your values or your views are if i want my child to wait till for marriage or if i want them to wait for I need to talk to them more about sex, not less. <laughs> you know, we need to have these conversations because that's what gives you the tools to be able to manage these sort of things. Pretending that it doesn't happen makes it worse. And so it is that broader question of what do we want for our young people and what are we doing to get there? And if we follow the evidence, then it means we have to do things that might make us feel uncomfortable. And I'm I'm not, again, something that I, I spend a lot of time when I do training things with people is My position is not pro this or pro that. My position, the only thing that I'm really interested in is what will make a young person walk through my door and ask for help. That is the only thing I'm interested in. Um, I'm not interested in anything else. And so what can I say or how can I present the work that I do in a way that will encourage them to come and ask and come and talk and come and confide and come and disclose? Um, That's what I'm interested in. And So if we want these positive outcomes for our young people, what are we doing between now and then? And there was a, a just a really small study that compared the UK with Holland with parent attitudes um, that I came across, um, and the difference is is not around the political views. It's not about um, one being more open than the other. It's about them actually having that co- that conversation about what do we want for our children and what are we going to do, and that's a question they asked when they were five not when they were 15 because if you want your teenager to talk to you when they're 15 you need to start talking to them yes. when they. you have to kind of get that currency in the bank you have to listen and you have to take interest in their friends you can't expect them just to start talking to you when they're teenagers um and so it is that kind of a conversation whereas parents in the uk tend to in the, this study they say oh you know i don't want to be like my mum and dad i want to have these conversations okay so what are you doing oh well, they're not ready yet when adults say they're not ready, what they mean is the adults aren't ready, not the children. Yeah. Children are really interested to have these conversations. And even if they're not, you don't wait for them to, to ask about crossing the road safely before we start having that conversation or brushing their teeth. As adults, we open those doors and we, we start those conversations so they know they're allowed to talk about them. Um, so it is about kind of laying the foundations, I think, really important and thinking about what we want.
2: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And so there's two big topics that I'd like to to speak with you about when 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 we're especially when we're talking about well in schools, but also parents talking with their with their children, as you've been discussing, one being porn, which is obviously just a huge topic, um, and and lots of people sort of link that to for example, so for example, I've seen people saying that things like everyone's invited. That the major reason for that is that young people are watching porn where women are objectified and abused and that it's porn's fault basically um and and consent which is obviously linked to this um and I, and i think that i mean yeah and, and that brings us brings us into a huge a huge area of conversation that might take us into rethinking education more widely so let's start with porn. okay um like and and there's, there's an interesting bit in the book about how to start that conversation about how yeah. to start how to d- begin to have that conversation with young people so how would you begin that conversation if you were a parent and you were concerned that your child may be watching porn, that they may be watching things that you deem to be inappropriate, or that you just want to have that conversation that you were saying much earlier on, like that, that you need to have a conversation with a child who hasn't ever watched porn before about porn. How would you begin to have that conversation? And what are the, some, some of the landmines to avoid?
1: Yeah, again,
0: my perspective on this um, is I'm not I don't think porn's brilliant, but I also don't think it's the problem that we make out. It is. And again, what I'm interested in is what can I say when we discuss porn? Because we need to discuss it that will help a young person engage in that conversation and actually have some sort of positive outcome at the end of it. It's not about me going, it's not a problem. Porn's great. Or, you know, let's ban porn. Both of those viewpoints aren't particularly very helpful. Um, but also, we talk about porn as if it's one thing that fits neatly in a in a box. Porn isn't that. Porn's like any other form of entertainment. Is that um, my example is war films? Some war films that you watch are just entertainment. They're just explosions where America saved the, the you know the world, even though they weren't in the war at that point. You know, it's just mm. explosions and nonsense. Other war films will show you what it was like emotionally to be in the trenches with your you know your fellow compatriots and there's no goodies or baddies and you know people behave awfully because they're dealing with awful you know it's really emotional and realistic porn's exactly the same um porn some porn is made by real couples showing real intimacy and is feminist and ethical and some is hi i've come to fix your boiler i've got a really big tool you know it's just complete nonsense um that's not how British gas works. You know, that's not how it is. Um, But then also what we we put in that box as well is abuse that's been filmed. That's not porn by any definition. That's sexual assault and abuse. Whereas quite often we put that in the box of porn. It's not, it should be something separate. Hmm. But porn is adult entertainment is not a euphemism. That's what it is. It's entertainment for adults. It's not designed to teach teenagers how to have sex. Um, but equally, all the issues that we have with pornography are the same issues we have with mainstream media as well, is issues around body image, around representation, around kind of consent and on screen and off screen and depictions of that. Consent isn't done very well in Hollywood, you know, on, on TV. You know, there's not many people don't ask to have sex or talk about it. They just look at each other, kiss and push each other up against the wall. The sex in mainstream Hollywood films isn't any more realistic. Although saying that, some things have changed. There are some much better things that are going on in Netflix dramas like Sex Education, we were talking about, the TV show, and mm. you know, Normal People, brilliant version of Consent in the second episode of, in that depiction of the BBC Three drama from the Sally Rooney book. Right. But traditionally, the ideas that are in mainstream films aren't any better than in pornography. But actually, that, that's kind of easier as adults to talk about because you've now got a dialogue. Because porn is something that people watch in private they don't sit in the living room watching it you don't sit down and watch a box set of porn whereas you do sit down and watch 10 episodes of netflix and parents have got an opportunity or adults have got an opportunity to talk to young people while those things are on screen normal you know mainstream tv and unpick the messages there you know things like friends ross is a massive toxic boyfriend he's awful (laughs) You know, but teenagers have gone. It's come back recently, and people are watching that. You can have those conversations about that manipulative behaviour that's going on. You can talk about those things, but that conversation is just as important and is laying that foundation for young people's critical skills to then put to pornography. But also, porn is not something I, I say this in the book, and you were laughing at me before we got on air about this. Um, porn is not something you watch; it's something that you wank to, for want of a better description. The average amount of time that people are watching porn for is around eight minutes. I think the last study that Pornhub released was, um, was the average time that users on screen. The impact from eight minutes is very different from watching a whole box set for a few hours. You know, it's a really different sort of nuance between them. Um, But again, if we're going to introduce talking about pornography is you need to let young people bring it up is what I find when I do lessons anyway, is if I walk into a classroom, if a school's asked me to go and talk about porn, I never start off there. I start off with the question of where do we get our ideas about sex and relationships from? And young people will talk about social media. They'll talk about families. They'll talk about school and teachers and lessons. And they'll talk about their mates. They'll talk about the magazines they read or the the blogs they're reading or the stuff on social media, the YouTube things. And then they'll bring up porn if I go in there and say, I need to talk to you about porn, there's already these kind of shutters that go up because those that are watching it already know that only people who are misogynistic and violent and hate women watch porn and it's dirty and seedy and not nice and pervy and weird. And that's both the boys and the girls who watch it, have that sort of interaction. But then equally those people who aren't really watching it that much in order to kind of show off and fit in, will kind of go, Oh yeah. And I'll tell you loads of stuff like Jay from the in and kind of big things up they're just complete nonsense <laughs> whereas if you start off with where do we get our ideas from and which are good places and bad places you already start this kind of critical analysis this critical thinking for young people are going well parents would be a really good source so why don't we talk about parents well because they don't want to think about you being sexual and you don't want to think about them being sexual and then we kind of talk what's worse are you walking in on your parents or your parents walking in on you and they're going to go oh <laughs> And that's a really important point is that we don't you're sitting down with, you know, adults with your parents or, you know, whoever's in your family having a conversation is. You don't want to think about them in that way, because that's really uncomfortable. You know, the both sides of that table are feeling creeped out. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point about how we view sex. We see it as something shameful and uncomfortable, not something that is normal and natural in that sort of way. And that creates a barrier. But also they'll tell you what's problems with learning at school, why biology is the wrong place, why learning in RE is wrong. They'll tell you about how it's delivered. They'll also tell you about the TV shows they're watching, the films they're watching, the stuff on Netflix. They'll tell you about the video games they're playing. And they'll tell you about what the ideas are. And what's really interesting is when you have this conversation, they start talking about porn. You say, right, OK, so it's, you know, it's got awful body images stuff. OK, well, what about watching, you know, TOWIE or, you know, Geordie Shore or, you know, Love Island? Oh yeah, that's really bad at body image as well. Okay, and we can I can show clips of Love Island in the classroom. I can put pictures up of Love Island in the classroom. I can't show you bits of porn because it's not ethical and it's not okay. Um, but we're having the same conversation about body image. Yeah. But the pro- they brought it up in that way, and we can talk about consent. You know that consent is not always there, or that the sex isn't realistic, or that it's not. You know, you, you shouldn't copy it. Okay. Well, should you copy? Think about the example I use is from you know our generation is Titanic. You know the film Titanic. Yeah. Kate Winslet loses her virginity, has sex for the first time in the back seat of a what a, a 1900s car under the sea level in where there's icebergs. That's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be fun. It's certainly not going to be steamy, and it's certainly not going to be enjoyable. It's going to be bloody freezing. And yet, suddenly it's this amazing romantic thing. I can't imagine the backseat of a car in those days is any more comfortable than the backseat of a Fiat now. It's, it's not going to be good. And yet, suddenly it's this really amazing romantic idea for her first time. Probably not. So, is it realistic? You know, uh, and actually, having those sorts of conversations with young people are really quite good fun and really quite interesting. But we're talking about porn. Yeah. We still have it and picking the same problems with it. But one of the other issues you have with pornography is that if you watch anything that makes you feel uncomfortable or unsafe or confused, if you're watching someone on Netflix, you can come downstairs and go, Mom, I was watching this. You Can't do that with porn because it's shameful. And I think that would be my first starting point for parents, actually, is the best message you can give to children when they first start using the Internet or looking at shows is to say, if you ever see anything, it's confusing or worrying or you're not sure about or you think it's not for you come and talk to us about it you won't be in trouble and that bit's the really important bit because having that dialogue is what takes diffuses the situation if you've got something in your head that's, you, that's scary or you know is confusing you keep playing it over and over whereas if you can go and talk about it that makes it safe yes unfortunately as parents you then need to be able to go when they come and say oh i just saw this on the internet not explode you need to be able to go okay well tell me what you saw tell me how you found that and we can put you can then put things in place to try and keep young people safe on the internet but also you can have those conversations and answer their question rather than carrying it around as a problem so the best conversations to have about porn to prepare young people for it aren't necessary conversations about porn it's about realism it's about critical thinking it's not everything we see online is real or true or honest yeah sure and that's the same as tv shows it's the same as porn you know it's exactly
2: the same and there are also interesting you know, it's not all negative either there's, uh, there's one of my favorite bits in the book there's a call-out box with the heading how to fuck like a porn star and then it goes <laughs> get tested regularly share your status with partners discuss boundaries before you start that's interesting, isn't it? So, like, like the, the whole idea around porn. Did you listen to um, the Butterfly Effect? That series by John Ronson?
0: No, it's on my list. I've got oh, it on a list man. of things that I need to listen to. It's
2: incredible. I really recommend it to anyone who hasn't listened to it. It's a very sensitive look at uh, at the porn industry and the, the 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 effect that Pornhub had on the porn industry and how it how it sort of has changed the way that porn is done because as a consequence it's really interesting but when you when you do sort of rip that plaster off and you get over the initial awkwardness of we're having a conversation about porn there's actually loads of really interesting aspects yeah. to, 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 to talk about it's not this like like you say it's not this monolithic like cause of uh of of all of the problems that we're seeing here um, and i think
0: like any industry there's good bits and there's bad bits yeah. um and I don't claim to be an expert on the porn industry or anything like that. Um, But what I think is really interesting is that it doesn't all fit in this box. I was having this conversation recently and they were saying that all porn is misogynistic and there's a a porn producer called Erica Lust. um, And she puts out kind of magazine blog posts and things like that, discussing things around sex and relationships. And they produced her production company produced a film recently around breast cancer for breast cancer awareness week. And, the film it's probably about 20 minutes long um the premise of it is a woman who has had a mastectomy and she's got a scar across her breast, um trying to get re really in touch with her and a partner to build that intimacy again it's a really tender and really thoughtful piece of cinema but it's a porn film but it's about her having a bath and a partner comes in and bathes her that's it there's no male pleasure in it at all other than him helping her kind of come to terms with a new body and still find her attractive sort of thing and build that sexuality back up
3: right
0: that's a really important conversation to have about you know as people age or cancer treatments and things is to talk about how that impacts the intimacy and the sex in your relationships and we don't have those conversations medically um but this is a porn film misogynistic violent hatred towards women porn film that's dealing with those sort of issues and so the idea that as i say at the start that porn is this thing it's just not true yes there is a load of that and really horrible stuff and the way that porn hub's probably one of the worst places is because it's you know this kind of youtube of porn and the the titles that are put on there are, are just horrible yeah and the problem you've got is these ethical films <laughs> that were 25 minutes long or cut to eight minutes and now called girl gets banged rather than serenity or whatever it was called before.
3: Right.
0: You know, and the bits they've cut out is all the pre and aftercare, So now it's just two people having sex. Um, and again, that's, that's another, these other interesting conversations that kind of can take place around um, pornography um, and things like that. And I think it, it's a much more nuanced conversation one thing that i think is a really big step and is again is an interesting thing is that um in tv now they now have uh, intimacy coordinators
2: right yeah so i was watching there's this program um called chivalry it's on it's on channel four at the moment steve coogan's in it and it's a sort of me too it's set in hollywood and it's a me too thing i was literally just watching it last night and and um yeah the, the, there's this whole episode about an intimacy coordinator yeah, Can you, could you explain what that is in case people aren't aware?
0: So again, this is, comes off the back of me too, um, is apparently what used to happen in kind of Hollywood and TV is that when there came to be a, a sex scene or an intimate scene on screen, the producers and directors used to say to the actors, going, right, go out tonight for dinner, get drunk, and you know, get to know each other so it looks good on screen. And there'd be no sort of direction or so any sort of coordination of talk through people's boundaries and those sort of things. Um, and that's where a lot of these issues kind of came from is that you had movie stars who were working with new actresses in most cases so you had person with power with person who was new and couldn't make a fuss who had to go along with what happened whereas when it comes to kind of fight scenes is you have stunt coordinators and for weeks and months before you do the stunt or the fight scene you practice it you coordinate it you talk about you know you talk about how mobile people are what people can do what they're comfortable with and you train them to get more comfortable to be able to push themselves a little bit further and you work through it and you practice it so it looks really good on camera and looks great so the fight scene looks real
3: yeah
0: and so all the intimacy coordinator is doing is the same job but it's around intimate scenes and they talk with both actors around their kind of their boundaries and what they're comfortable with and what would look good and what they're happy with with doing and not doing um And so, in fact, I I believe it's the same intimacy intimacy coordinator that did Sex Education, did I Will Destroy You and Normal People. And you can really tell in those scenes that you've got people who are comfortable, however explicit they might be, is you get to have some of those really interesting kind of points of drama um, taking place where actors leave feeling good about themselves rather than leaving like something's happened to them. And I think that's a really, really important kind of step forward. Um, I was listening to a podcast with Hannah Witten, who is she's a, a youngish person, and she's probably in the mid thirties now. Who um, has got a YouTube channel that talks about sex and relationships, um, and she's got the Hormone Diaries, which is a book around um, periods, which um, is really interesting. But she was talking to um, an intimacy coordinator on her podcast. It was really interesting to listen um, to kind of how things have changed and how you can visually see the kind of scenes that are taking place now in TV shows yeah. compared to what they historically used to be.
2: Absolutely. So I think that's
0: a really important step forward. But that's something that for a lot of porn has been in place for a long time is they have those conversations off, off screen and maybe not to the same sort of extent. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where that
2: comes from. Mm, fascinating. So, so let's come into consent. We we've sort of touched upon it there with this, with this, the, this um, new introduction of intimacy coordinators consent is is huge it's just like the mother of all topics um and it's so important that we that we address this so maybe as a way into this it might be good to talk about the, the, there's an exercise that you say in the book that you used to do with young people and now you just talk it through because you weren't that comfortable about about the way that it sort of illustrated consent but just for the benefit of listeners please could you talk us through that because i think that it illustrates the, the nature of, of how complex consent can be in a really interesting way
0: Yeah I think we first of all we simplify consent Um, and even in the new RSE guidance it talks about the legal frameworks for it Um, and quite often young people are taught the kind of if somebody says no or stop then that then you need to stop and that's really straightforward and really simple but it doesn't get into the nuance of why somebody might not say stop or no it puts all the emphasis on the person who feels uncomfortable to speak up Mm. not the person who might be pushing things forward And so there's an activity, I think I only did it maybe half a dozen times a few years ago, and I stopped um, after reflecting on it. I was reading a really interesting article by a guy called Justin Hancock, who is another um, sexual relationship worker, um, who did some really interesting stuff at BISH. Um, And it was something that had already made me feel a little bit uncomfortable, so I stopped doing it. Um, But I talk about it, and actually talking about it is even better. It has a better outcome. But what I do is I get young people to kind of imagine, imagine an assembly hall where you've got kind of the whole it's doing a year group assembly to year seven or year eight, something like that. And you've got 160 pupils all sat in the rows in the hall and the teachers, the form tutors are all down the outside, and I'm still on stage at the front. We've just introduced consent, we've talked to all about giving permission and choice and things like that. Um we've had a conversation about consent forms and going on school trips and how that might work. Um and I say, right, I need three volunteers to help me with this activity um and then because they're year sevens you've still got those that are a bit like you know dead excited that will wave at you and jump up ignore them but also there's those pupils that kind of disappear and go don't pick me they just go invisible most students do that thing where they look at you but they're trying really hard not to look at you they're looking at your ear and your forehead and trying really hard not to make eye contact they're the ones that are really good and so you point <laughs> at these people and you go right can you you and you and there's this kind of moment when you point at them and they kind of rabbit in the like kind of go white and they point to a friend on either side and then realise it's them.
3: Uh-huh.
0: And you can see this kind of panic drain from their face. <laughs> and then they stand up and then they shuffle to the end of their row and they walk to the front of the assembly hall as if they're going to the gallows or they're going to be shot when they get there. And then they come and stand at the stage, like panic on their face, staring out at the crowd. So I describe all that to young people and they all have a bit of a laugh. And then you go, right, did they consent? And there's this really interesting conversation that always takes place where some people go, oh, yeah, because they stood up. And other people go, no, because they don't want to. And we kind of unpick it slowly. And you kind of go, right, did I make them? Did I threaten them? Did I say I'll get you excluded if you don't come to the front? Oh, no. Did I grab them by the hair and drag them? No. So did they, did they come up by themselves? Yes. But did they want to? No. Uh, and there's this kind of really interesting and picking about why people behave in those sort of ways. And we talk about that in order for consent to take place, there's legal framework is capacity choice and freedom. So it's only a choice if it's a free choice. And what we mean by that is, you know, if after this I'm walking down the street and um, somebody goes, gives me give me your wallet and tries to mug me. If I take my wallet out of my pocket and give it to them, that's not me giving them my my wallet because there's a, a some sort of implication that if I don't, they're going to hurt me. Uh so it's not a free choice because if i say no something bad will happen Um, so that's what we kind of mean capacity is about whether we have the mental ability to to agree so obviously drugs and alcohol can affect our capacity um age affects it you know legally you have to be 16 that's kind of how the rules work we can get into that as another conversation to have about consent um about how we feel about the age of consent but then we talk about this kind of setup that we've got if we're in the assembly hall who else is in the room and they'll say right you got the teachers The message we give to children and young people from day one is always respect your elders, always do as you're told, always listen when grown ups talk. Which means that you're not allowed to go no, I don't want to, because this is kind of consideration that you're being rude or that it's disrespectful. And as a guest, it's even worse because schools have that secret chat before you come in, going oh we've got a guest coming in tomorrow, and you know don't let me down, don't let the school down, don't let yourself you know all that kind of nonsense. So we're building this kind of power imbalance up. Where we've got an adult, person in authority, asking somebody to do something, and other adults in the room. But then the other thing that's playing out is you've also got all the young people in there as well. And there's that fear if I say no, I don't want to, not only will I be considered rude, but my mates will go, Oh yeah, don't be at worse, what's wrong with you? And what we forget about a lot of young people's interactions is that they take place in public. They take place in front of their peers. Even if they're in private, they're still in front of their peers because they talk about it. Which means that You can't always say no if you you, because you might be called out, sort of thing. There's an expectation, a public expectation. So there is a power imbalance in that dynamic, which explains why somebody who clearly doesn't want to do something will stand up and get involved. And then if you flip that to being two teenagers on the sofa making out, Mm. you're making out, you're enjoying what's going on, and then one of you takes it to the next step, maybe puts their hand up your top or down your pants, whatever it might be. And That makes you feel uncomfortable if you say no or stop now we know that that stops everything that's the rule what that's what we've been told but we don't get into why that might be difficult and what actually happens when you say no or stop so your choice is to let things happen or when you say no there's this kind of moment of oh did did but uh, you know this insecurity that kind of hits in about do you not like me do you not love me did i do something wrong did i hurt you what, why is there somebody else or, you know all these insecurities that kind of come out
1: mm.
0: and you don't just carry on making out it's kind of a further than you want to go or not at all there's no kind of middle ground because that's how we do these sort of interactions because right. there's no sort of discussion instead we're putting the, all the onus on this person who feels uncomfortable to be able to say why that might not be okay rather than checking in with each other and kind of going how about this does that feel nice should we try this does this feel good and so my view is is the is the best way of teaching consent is to talk about what we like talk about pleasure from that point of view and to kind of start those kind of conversations to be able to talk about what you want and how you feel and if we can do that that's how consent kind of works
2: can I can I ask you there? So there's a, there's a bit in this in the early in this ch- chapter on consent, which is sort of quite funny, where you talk about consent and kissing, um, yeah. and it, and it, that sort of illustrates how thorny an issue this is. Because like, how many people have ever like had a conversation about like, is it okay if we kiss now? Like that that conversation, is, I don't know. Maybe it's happened, but it probably it's not the norm, is it? Yeah. Um, and and that's an interesting way, a again, to talk to young people. Could you talk us through that, please?
0: Oh yeah, it's one of, again. It's one of my favourite conversations to have with young people because i I can do this quite physically and quite daft. I don't mind making a fool out of myself when I do it with young people, and we talk about right. So you're at a party. There's somebody over there that I fancy. How do I go from here to kissing them? And they try and talk you through what the rules are. Um, because you say, "Well, can I just go and ask?" You say, "Well, no, nobody asks anybody for a kiss because that's weird and creepy." <laughs> okay. And so you go right. So it's about how they look at you. So they give you the eyes. You, so obviously the next question is. Show me how you give someone the eyes, and you've got all these kind of teenagers kind of go, getting embarrassed, but trying to look smoldering at people. It's really hilarious. <laughs> and I mime that on stage being daft, and they go, "Oh no, but you can, you can kind of tell because there's a vibe." So what's the vibe? And and they talk you through like open body language, and you're like well, what does that look like? And <laughs> you know what's the universal sign for you know kissing somebody? You know it's just really daft and silly. And they go, oh, if they play with their hair, then they might have nits." You know, if they cross, if they look at you in the eye, then look at your lips, then look at your eyes, and look at your lips, you've got something stuck in your teeth. You know, it's all <laughs> this nonsense about body language and how we do it. Um, and again, one thing that's kind of quite interesting is going back to Love Island. I talk about this is that the producers of Love Island, the shows like Slabs Go Dating and things like that, have put certain rules in place, which means that in order for any intimacy to take place, they have to ask. And so suddenly you've got TV shows that not because they're trying to be forward thinking and show good consent it's they're trying to stop sexual harassment claims um and getting in trouble is you've got these people who go out on dates going oh yeah you're a bit of me you are and and then they go can i kiss you and we don't see that on screen and the more you know usually in a in a film when two people are going to kiss the you know the moon comes out and it starts to rain but not in a wet way but in a sexy way and they look dreamily into each other's eyes and music starts playing and there's this whole kind of scene that's built around this moment yeah. where this creates this vibe and it builds to this tension and then they kiss. That's not how it happens in real life. Cause you've not got your own you know, music playing and lighting <laughs> wind machine. And so again, another conversation we have with young people is that, you know, if you're walking down the corridor with somebody you've been flirting with, if you pinch their bum as they walk by, is that flirting or is that a sexual assault? And it's a really interesting conversation. It's like, well, it depends on how they react so the only way to find out if you've sexually assaulted somebody is to sexually assault them first and see if they get angry at it. And they're like, oh, no, that's not. And it's really interesting to unpick. pick. Well, the difference?
3: Yeah.
0: So the other one I talk about is bullying. Um, is that if you wrote a list of how you bully somebody, you know, people say, you know, you hit them, you call them names, you take the mickey out of their haircut, you steal their stuff, you push them over, all those kind of things. And then you say, write a list of how you, you know, you treat your best friend in the whole wide world. It's the same list you know, that's what we do to our friends. We're, we're horrible to them in that. But one's playful and one's harmful. So what's the difference? Because actually, that's the same. And it's about the intention behind it. It's how the other person takes it. But we don't know how somebody feels about something. And even with your best friends, sometimes they say things and you kind of have to go, oh, no, that's not OK. But the point is with a friend is that you should be able to have that conversation. We don't. you should be able to and that's what consent is about is about you being able to talk about how you feel what your boundaries are and those being respected it's a rights point of view Um, whereas consent we do it in a legal framework which is not the right way of doing it um
2: yeah just, just on that so, so, so you talk about a rights that you advocate a rights-based approach to addressing these things can yeah. you just uh, uh, elaborate on what you mean by that and what is what is the opposite of a rights-based approach?
0: Well kind of we have this kind of um, transactional version of consent where somebody says yes and then things happen sort of thing I say yes and then this is the next thing that kind of but with, there's no sort of conversation about what we're saying yes to it's kind of you kind of keep going until somebody says stop that's kind of how it kind of works um and if you're going out with somebody that's almost implied consent in some people's eyes or if you say do you want to come back to mine what does that look like well it's coming from a rights point of view is understanding that everybody has body autonomy you have the right to do what you choose with your body and you get to decide who interacts with that um and it's the point about when you talk about rights is you having rights is only half of it it's about respecting other people's rights is just as important and so a rights-based approach to these kind of things is about encouraging young people to talk about how they feel and what they want and enforcing those things um when somebody says you know when you put a boundary in place you saying you can't talk to me like that that's not putting a boundary in place you go in and leaving the conversation is you enforcing a boundary you get to decide those sort of things um when it comes to consent it's this idea that teaching young people that they have body autonomy and those messages start really really early my body belongs to me is my fun fun for everybody those kind of things but those two messages one is about you and one is about for the people is my fun fun for everybody so it's about understanding that if i'm going to do something sex is something you should do with somebody not to somebody whereas a lot of the language that we frame around sex is is this kind of not only transactional but kind of conquest you know did you score what base did you get to all those kind of americanisms and so it's about changing the view from instead of the on the person to who feels uncomfortable to say no but instead it being this thing about going how does this feel does it you know so there's this episode of normal people which if it was written by a sexual health worker or educator they would have written it in that exact way there's this scene in it's the second episode when um marianne and connell have sex for the first time and she says to him can we take our clothes off now and he says oh yeah that'd be okay um and they start to undress and this kind of awkward and funny and at the same time as their clothes get caught on their hair and they fall over as they take their pants off sort of thing. Yeah. Um and then one starts touching he so said one goes to touch the other and he says, Oh, is this okay? And she says, Oh yeah, that feels okay. Can I do that to you too? And you know, they kind of step by step go through this process of saying, How about this? What about that? And that's really good consent because it's fluid. Right.
1: Um
0: and the, one of the best moments is is just before anything happens he says to her he says if you want to stop it's okay um it won't be weird and i'm okay with that just say um but even then after that he still says how is is this okay he keeps checking in it's that checking in with the partner um and it's normalizing that as sex should be something that is mutual but also kissing should be mutual you know um and again it's an interesting conversation to have with young people it is you know Would you ever say to somebody, can I pinch your bum? That's a bit of a weird thing to say. Um, But again, we've all had relationships where, you, you know, somebody's washing up and your partner comes up and grabs you. And we don't always want that. We don't always feel okay. but there's this kind of implication that because you're my partner, I can do that to you whenever I want sort of thing. And it's about changing those goalposts and changing those sort of ideas and concepts of what consent looks like and who has rights over to whose bodies. Yeah, you know and if you think about like making a sandwich you can make the biggest sandwich you want stick everything you want in it you don't have to eat it all you can change your mind at any point you know it's about moving consent into something that's fluid like pleasure what i liked and enjoyed yesterday is not what i want or enjoy today yeah just because i enjoyed something two minutes ago i don't enjoy it anymore it doesn't feel good anymore it should be fluid rather than this kind of give and take transactional sort of thing
2: yeah, yeah, I see, and that's a really good example of of what good practice looks like. Can we come back to the pr- the problem of consent? Like, like so we're in this place. Like we were saying earlier, everyone's invited. Everyday sexism. There's there's been this horrendous um, spate of incidents really recently of like young women being drugged in nightclubs. Like some some places routinely like giving women a, a drink that has like a, a seal over the top of it, mm. so that it can't be drugged easily. Things uh, uh, instances of people being injected, physically injected with, with, I guess, rohypnol or something akin to that, some sort of sedative. Like, uh, f- I mean, goodness me, we're a long way beyond consent at this point. Like, like there's something gone really, really wrong in those cases. And the, the, the statistics around this and the rising incidence of it, um, and when uh, it's sort of almost like hard to understand because it seems such an extreme thing to do and the way that it's sort of become normalized so there's like young women are routinely wearing thick denim for example when they go out to nightclubs because it's harder to pierce with a needle like oh, my god how have we got to this point and and when, when to the extent that I've discussed this with people they often talk about power that it's that it's not really about sex it's not about sort of trying to get off with people or to sort of have some sort of um gratification it's sort of, it's like a power thing that it's often young men who feel powerless, that haven't, that haven't been able to exercise power elsewhere in their own lives. And they feel like they have to resort to this horrific, desperate way in order to, to feel that they have power over, over young people, um, over, over other people rather. Um, I mean, that's this dark territory. I don't know if you have any initial thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of these problems that you kind of tie yourself in knots and pick in. and I think there's, there's a number of different aspects to it. Um, one goes back to the kind of gender inequality that we started off talking about right at the start when we talked about things like puberty and name and body parts.
3: Right. Is mm-hmm. that we
0: frame sex as something that men do to women. That is how it's framed from day one. And it's how we teach small children, how we teach them through puberty. And then we come to, you know, when we talk about things like contraception, boys have a condom, girls have all these other things. And girls, be careful, don't get pre- You know, the responsibility is all put on girls. When it comes to consent, again, the interesting thing is I've got in the habit of afterwards when I do consent sessions of flipping it around and kind of saying to the girls in the room, how many girls have ever asked boys for consent? And they're like, whoa, well, that's not our job. It's the boys for mm. boys, because boys, boys push. We set it up that sex is this kind of competition. And boys job is to attack and push as far as they can. And girls job is to defend because nice girls don't do that. But then you have to give in at the right. You know, it's this kind of attack and defense sort of idea.
3: Right.
0: We're in opposition rather than it's something that's mutual. And that's a really big distinction of changing sex. And again, I'm very aware that this is a very heteronormative sort of heterosexual sort of idea. But,
3: right.
0: And that's another reason why it's really important to talk about sex, not penis and vaginal sex, is because actually there's a lot more options there for young people that not only make things more inclusive. So instead of just doing a session on contraception, change the title to What Makes Sex Safe? And then if I'm in a same sex relationship, if I'm not sexually you know, having penetrative sex, if I'm a boy, suddenly that session is all about me. You know, if I'm a, a young girl who has sex with other girls, why do I need to know about contraception? It's nothing to do with me. If I'm a lad who has sex with another boy, if the session called what makes sex safe, it's relatable to everybody. And we'll talk about contraception, but we'll talk about trust and consent and healthy relationships and, you know, all those kind of bits and pieces as well. Sorry, that's a sidetrack, but it, it's part of the issue is that we still frame sex as something for boys do to girls. And that puts huge pressure on boys and a huge pressure on girls. Um, Lots of lads that I speak to don't see sex that way and don't feel that way. Boys have the same emotional range as girls. It's just, we, we suppress that. We tell boys that all girls, all boys just want to chag anything that moves sort of thing. And nice girls don't, that's how we frame it. Mm. And so we set things up you know, the amount of schools that phone me and say, can you come and talk to year nine or year 10 about, you know, sharing nudes around sexting? Can you tell the boys to stop pestering the girls and tell you the girls that nice girl? that's perpetuating it and that's making it worse. Right. And I say, no, I can come and talk about it, but we can't just talk about boys and girls in that way, because what you're doing is you're framing boys behaviors to be this toxic sort of thing and girls to be this kind of, kind of, uh, idealized sort of innocent thing which isn't true either we need to give both agency in both space and change that sort of conversation so that's one thing the second thing is there was a study done in america around uh, they call it sexual citizenship and they were talking about students going off to university and the amount of sexual assaults that take place there and they were talking about the amount of students that go to university um who have kind of All the skills and abilities academically, but don't have the nuance of how to manage relationships. And they were saying a lot of sexual assaults that take place on campus, one person feels like they've been abused and the other person thought they had a really good time because there's this kind of misunderstanding about what consent is and how things work. So, you know, if you've been hanging out and enjoying your time together and you're in halls in university, as most people are in their first kind of year. And you say, do you want to come back to mine? Because I want to carry on talking to you because the bar shit and I'm, I'm really enjoying hanging out. If I say, do you want to come back to mine? Does that mean do you want to come back to mine and hang out or do you want to come back and have sex? Because when you go back to your hall's room, you've got a desk and a lamp and a bed. There's no sofa. There's no lounge. We're in your bedroom. So it, you know, the context, the geographies of that have changed the situation. And so equally, some people go back to people's rooms and think, well, I've come back here now, so I have to do something because otherwise I'll be disappointed because we're not very good at having those sorts of conversations about what we want and what we don't want. We're now in this kind of position where we feel obliged. Um, And so there's that element to it as well. But then there's this other kind of toxic element, which is this kind of nice, well, I'm a nice guy. And you've got stuff that gets into all the kind of stuff on the internet around incels and the manosphere and pick up artists and you talked about guys who feel insecure or or not able to we put all this pressure on boys to lead everything and to be this kind of you know proper lad um and they haven't got the skills or the abilities to do that all the confidence um it's a massive amount of pressure and so they're then resorting to really toxic behaviors that just aren't okay um but also those behaviors are excuse as being banter or that's what lads do or boys will be boys um so it's kind of one of these really multifaceted sort of things but it's it's not new it's been around for a really long time and you talked about power i have this really interesting conversation about catcalling that we've been having quite a lot recently and we talk about catcalling and really interestingly in the press especially there's been some women who've defended catcalling as it's a compliment and you kind of go oh god really um and having this conversation with young people because if you say what sexual harassment the first thing that comes out is catcalling and most teenage girls have had an experience about this when they're 14 if not before and you say right so what is it and they'll give you like the stereotype of walking home from school and somebody shouting out of a white van at them um and we talk about is it a compliment or is it not and a compliment's supposed to make you feel good about yourself it makes you feel you know wanted and needed and good mm-hmm. um Is that how you feel when somebody wolf whistles you or shouts, you're right, darling? No, it makes you squirm and do this. And so so what's the point of it? You know, and I talk about the fact having worked in relationships um, for like 20 years. I've never met anybody who sits down and says, oh, you know, how did you two meet? Well, it was really interesting. I was walking home from college and uh, he wolf whistled me out of the van and went, nice tits, darling. I just knew he was the one for me. You know, that's not a conversation that has ever happened. <laughs> Nobody has ever got a date after somebody shouting something explicit at them. You know, that's not how it is. It's about making somebody feel uncomfortable. Um, and we've now got a new version of this, which is kind of um, unsolicited dick pics of kind of um, cyber flashing, which you can do using Bluetooth and things on your phone. And I've talked to young you know, teenagers who get on buses and things and suddenly their phone will ping with a dick pic from somebody saying hello pretty on it. And it's from somebody on the bus that they don't know. Right. But, you know, because they've got airdrop turned on on their phone or Bluetooth or whatever, this person has managed to find them. They're not expecting you to stand up and go, oh, who said, you know, and, and ask them out for coffee. They want to sit and watch you feel uncomfortable. It's about power. And I think people who do those sorts of behaviours are people who don't feel secure in themselves. It's that typical bullying kind of behaviour. If I make you look small... It makes me feel more confident than i really am
1: right and the
0: people who do these behaviors are those who don't always feel the most confident to go up and say can we have a chat you know but equally why <laughs> oh, there was something on oh, tiktok about how to chat up a girl wearing headphones you kind of go in people wear headphones because they don't want you to talk to them yeah that that's a signal of leave me alone you know it's not of if somebody says no it's not that doesn't mean try harder and again some of these really toxic messages that were in the pickup artist sort of um sphere online you know in the early noughties have now come into the kind of the incel kind of community now and it's it is a problem but again i think it's a root problem that we can dial back to this kind of how we set sex up as this in inequality between gender giving girls more agency and telling boys that you know it's not up to them. It's not their job to push it forward. And actually you can have feelings, you know, man up, stop crying, stop being a girl. And it's all those sort of like, mm. if you're brave, you've got balls. Why is no ever told you, tell you, you've got proper ovaries. You have your ovaries are massive. The you know, girls are really brave. Why do we not use that language? You know, it's your manhood. It's all about how we frame masculinities. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes down to the problem is, is that you've got this pushback at the moment around like an anti-feminist voice, feminism's gone too far because you know white working class boys are really struggling yeah you know levels of mental health among men are worse than women yes men are more likely to be the victim of violence crime yes you know suicide rate yes but that's because of the way we set up being a man it's not about feminism it's feminism is really good for men <laughs> the reason men take their own lives is because we teach them to be emotionally illiterate you know that's toxic masculinity It's not because feminism's taking away their power yeah. It's completely the opposite. boys should be feminist for, for, for selfish reasons you know the things that are harming women and the things that are harming men and I think it's really important and it's one thing that I spend a lot of time doing is talking a lot around feminism and why it's really important to empower women and why it's really important for boys to empower women and for boys to defend you know to speak call in their. Their peers to say, "Dude, that's not okay."
2: Yeah, so so can I ask you a question here? That my my friend Cath uh, Pratt, who's uh, a f- mother of four boys, uh, all under the age of like ten, um and she home educates them. Uh, wow. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, and she was gonna, she was hoping to join this call for a bit of today, but um they've all got COVID, so that's not really going to happen. um But I'd like to just ask ask you a question, if I may. So she was talking. Uh, she sent me some questions through. She said, I really like the idea that we should talk about sex as being something that gives us pleasure and our partner around that central tenet. So much makes so much more sense for me. And it disassembles the entrenched idea that it's something that is done to someone else. She said, I'm hanging on to that. And then she said, I'm already finding that the boys between each other chat about women's bodies in an objectified way. She talks about a song. There's a song by Tim Minchin called Confessions, where he um, he sings in the verse very powerfully about women's rights or so on. And then the chorus is, fuck, I look, boobs, though. Yeah. I just want to rub them and all that stuff, right? And the, the, Which the boys found hilarious and sang it gleefully to their dad as he walked in the door. She said, we exchanged a look and I felt all my careful teaching just evaporated and I rolled my eyes. It feels like an exhausting fight for women in particular. And the internet is everything from insidious to blatant when it comes to sexism misogyny and abuses she goes and say i'm feeling overwhelmed that even in my corner of cornwall and home education that the evolutionary wiring in their brains seems to seek out this need to dominate women's bodies from language to physicality i've definitely (laughs) i've definitely been put on this planet to untangle it with four of them can you help me how can we equip them with great filters filters for all of the rubbish that is currently and will flow into their heads yeah, it's
0: uh one, it's a hand handful. That's a whole tribe of it's a little football <laughs> team there. It's fantastic. Um I think the thing is first of all, men are not biologically hardwired in any way, shape, or form. There's this idea of men and women being different in that is is kind of nonsense. There's very little evidence for it. There's this kind of idea of neuroplasticity, which is a lot of these kind of gender differences we see in the brain come from the way that they're formed by interactions in early childhood and as we go through an early event, uh, kind of experiences. We treat girls and boys differently as adults. We have done as a society. um there's a really interesting piece of research around um, the fireman's pole in the playground, and they just watched the fireman's pole for a few days, and the adults interact with children. When adults interact with boys, they encourage them to climb higher, to jump, to do these things, um, and use their bodies in that way. Whereas for girls we kind of do the opposite. We we kind of warn them and say, oh, are you sure? Be careful. Oh, slow down. You know, we we put those barriers in place. Um, the same as kind of in schools is there's a number of different studies that talk about boys are told no and stop for their behaviours, whereas girls are told, are kind of giving examples of how to do things differently. Um, girls are encouraged to read in early childhood, boys not so much. Um, but also we teach boys about their feelings Um I was reading another study recently about five and seven-year-olds, and they were asking about the, what feelings they knew, and the average boys by the age of five can name three. Hungry, happy, and angry. If you've only got the choice between wanting food, um, being happy or being angry, that gives you a very limited interaction with the world, whereas girls can name a whole list of them. That's not because they're boys. It's because of what we tell boys. Um, so I'm a really big fan of the way you start challenging this is to talk about your feelings. Um, emotional literacy is one of the biggest skills we can impact on children, both you know, of girls and boys. Um, and it's a really simple thing to do. Is again, model it is one place to start off with. So every day, talk about how you feel. It's not about how you're behaving because your behaviours are different. There's no such thing as good and bad feelings. How you behave that make it good and bad. Um, you know, they're the standard sort of mantras that we have with young people. Um, you can tell them you're feeling angry or frustrated or worried or anxious and just get in the habit of saying how you're feeling and what you're doing to manage it because that's a really good modelling sort of behaviour and encourage the boys to start talking about how they're feeling. You know, there's lots of different ways you can talk about it. You can describe it like different weather, you know, weather system, you know, how, or colours or whatever it might be. And there's some really good books about it as well. And that's the other thing is when you watch TV shows, when you're reading books, get in the habit and i say this to school teachers all the time is get in the habit of no matter what you're teaching ask how does the character feel and how do you know what are the clues because they won't always tell you how they feel but there'll be clues in the in the text people watch is a really good one is that when you're sat in the park or you know you're sat in the queue at a theme park or whatever else get them to make up stories One, it passes the time but two is it helps you build the skills for emotional literacy it's those kind of detective skills of oh well that, that person's late for an important meeting how do you know because they've got jammed down their tie and their red face because they have run for the bus you know what are the clues that are there you know you're making things up but that's what empathy is it's about imagining that you're somebody else and imagining how they might be feeling and we know that by the age of kind of 13 boys have an empathy gap with girls that's what the research shows. That's not because they're boys. It's because of how we teach boys. know, in class, if somebody's upset, we sit them with the girls. Sit them with the boys. You know, what? why do we assume that girls are better at than boys? But girls become better at it because we teach them to do it and we give them practice at doing it. And so if you can start picking those sort of emotional literacy sort of things, get boys to talk about their feelings, to get boys not to be ashamed to tell you how they feel, to expand their feeling range from happy to angry and that's again really interesting when we talk about toxic masculinity is that men's response to disappointment to anxiety to being tired to all the other range of feelings that we have is anger because we don't have that we don't know how to talk about those feelings and so our reaction is always to go to anger that's a problem and that's where it needs in picking is giving those tools to young people so that they've got those full range of feelings you know, you can play feeling charades as a game, not, you know, encourage primary schools to play. You know, pull faces and the other the people have got to guess. Mm-hmm. Get them to act something out without pulling a face. So they've got to walk in and do something and you've got to guess how they might be feeling. Or they've got to say something without being deadpan as well. So you can think about how people might speak, how people might behave and what faces they might pull. One, that gives you practice to try them on. And two, it gives you practice to read them as well they're really important skills um as to the kind of body stuff unfortunately both online for men and women because it's also getting a problem for men around body image there's all the kind of fitness industry and protein shake sort of you know workout get shredded sort of stuff for guys as well it is a huge problem um but one thing again that we need to remember about social media is just like you can pick your friends in the playground and we're not always good at doing that you get to decide what you see online as well, to an extent. You know, if you watch people who, you know, you choose to follow people with body positivity and, you know, positive messages, you get them in your feed. But we don't do that. The Same reason why we used to buy beauty magazines. We buy them because they make us feel bad. And yet we buy more of them. You know, it's, it's always been that sort of way. It's not a new thing. It's just the Internet's much bigger. But again, you get to choose those things. And I think one of the big things you can do with young people now is teach them those kind of critical thinking sort of skills it is talk about that what you see in a magazine isn't always real. It's touched up. There's all those photographs online of, of seeing what the original photograph was to now. And you can do them with yourselves. We you play with it on your phone with filters and show them how those things sort of work is the online world is curated. It's not a, a reflection. And that's a really important message too. But, I think the problem is, is that you only have control over your little bubble. You can't change society. Same in schools mm. is we can only sort out what happens on the school, you know, in the, the school walls, sort of thing. Yeah. You've not got to solve all the world's problems, but if you show a model, really good behaviors in that space, you then send out all these little people into the world who are modeling those really good behaviors. And that's has a snowball sort of effect. Yes. And so I think, um, If with your four boys, you can kind of get them to talk positively about their feelings and encourage it, change what being masculine is all about, you know, what what being brave looks like. It's not pretending you haven't got feelings. It's saying, this is how I feel. That's really brave. You know, if you can start changing those sort of things, then slowly that starts to filter down, I think is a good kind of place to start. You can't, you're not going to solve the world, but you can start these kind of positive ideas and model those ideas because we learn so much more by modeling than we do by reading or watching you know in that sort of way
2: yeah sure yeah absolutely and you're right it's an interesting point that about the the extent to which we can expect to have an influence but the vast majority of people go to school right and so if we are able to I wouldn't say that school is to blame for the for the problems that we're seeing in society but we if we had a more consent-based education system, for example, rather than such a coercive one, would we see so much coercive behaviour happening out in society? Arguably not. Um, and so so let's just bring it back to consent, and then we'll wrap this up, um, and we'll move on to, to other things, if that's right with you. Yeah. Um, so again, and Kath, again, so she adds a final bit on here. She says, consent is also a big one for me. She says, I loved the exercises in the book demonstrating the nuance in consent Power relationships are critical here, as we've been discussing, and my deep concern is the way that most people parent and most people are schooled means that coercion is the dominant method of control always. It undermines how consent works and underpins the problems that we see around sexual consent. And then she asks, how can we inspire and encourage consent-based education across the board to enable this shift in power dynamics of sexual domination and submission into one of mutual respect and pleasure, and this speaks to like the, the big question here, which is like, is to or rather, let's change the phrasing of it. To what extent is the fact that schooling is so coercive to blame for the situation that we're that we find ourselves in?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I think oh, I think that's kind of hitting the nail on the head. Is that it does undermine the you know you can do this really good lesson about consent it's one reason why i don't do that activity i talk about it is because it undermines the whole premise of it is i'm making somebody do something they don't want to do um and i think if you can change that and start modeling those sort of interactions as a parent or as a safe adult in school you know in primary school especially we do things to children we get them dressed we go oh do you coat or put your coat on you know rather than just taking that extra minute and i understand i you know i have a child myself I know what it's like when you're trying when you start to, to get them ready when they were little is that it's so much easier just to do their coat up for them rather than ask them if they want help but it is that the more you do those little changes the more you kind of ingrain it the more they you know children practice what you they they experience and unfortunately so much of schooling is non-consensual it's done to children it's not done with it's not co-created in that sort of way and it gets you definitely into this wider conversation about what do we what do we think education's for? what Who is it for? Um, and what do we want it to achieve? And I think what we're saying we want it to achieve is not what we're doing. I think they're different things. Um, and I think doing an hour-long lesson around consent is pointless if the young people then go into the corridors or the way that the behaviour policies is managed, the way the school uniform policy is managed, the way that The rest of the classes are delivered to young people, undermine it. So, Mm. I think it needs to have a big, broader conversation about how that kind of goes. Um, And so, a whole school approach to RSE is about from top to bottom is if you're going to, what you say in the classroom has to play out in the corridors. Because if it doesn't, and the adults in the rooms aren't leading that, you know, there's Paul Dix who does his book of um, When the Adults Change, Everything Changes. I'm a really big fan of that sort of thinking of this relationship-based practice and of the adults behaving like adults, whereas quite often that's not what happens.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, the amount of adults both at home and the schools who said, cause I said so, well, that's not the answer, you know, and, and they do use their opportunity to, you know, so uniforms are, is one that I've been doing quite a lot of work around the sexual harassment stuff. And the amount of time school uniform comes up as an issue. And I think it's a really interesting conversation about why do we have a uniform? You know, think about during lockdown, no young person was doing online learning in their uniform. They were sat in their joggers and their hoodies and they were comfy. If you're sat in a lesson with a really strict blazer on and your shirt tucked in and your tie up, do I feel comfortable to learn? Probably not. You know, are we encouraging young people to dress for the world of work? I wear jeans and a t-shirt every day for work. and I have done for 20 years. You know, it's, world's changed what what do we want from uniform and i'm not saying uniform doesn't have a place but one thing that comes out nine you know time and time again is that girls uniform is policed differently to boys
2: skirt length in particular
0: yeah but also i'm i'm five foot six rugby player so there is one shop in the entire world that they sell for hobbits with big thighs um i wear short leg jeans with a two inch turn up on the end because it's trendy and because they're too long for my legs um if a school uniform sells its shop you know most school uniform comes from one shop they get the contract for that school uniform and you buy it from that one place if all your listeners all had to go buy a pair of trousers from the same shop we'd be really uncomfortable because we've got different shaped bodies so, when you've got teenagers who are going through puberty and their bodies are changing, and there's only one place to buy that school skirt from or that school blouse, suddenly those girls that are developing breasts, you know, more curvaceous, they're bursting out of them, no matter what size, because they tend to be shorter in the length. And, you know, that's how blouses are kind of fitted. Mm. But also those people who are much slimmer or much bigger, it fits differently. And if you don't feel comfortable, you carry yourself differently. But also the fact you're bursting out your shirt draws attention to you, which then creates these sort of things. You know what I mean? So if we wanted to improve things and we really wanted to improve things, it's not just about delivering a lesson around sexual harassment. It's about, well, what can we do with the school behaviour policy? What can we do with the uniform policy? And who is that uniform serving? Does it help young people learn? If a young person says, I'm too hot, can I take my blazer off? No, you're not allowed to in a lesson why is that achieving that you know does the fact that i look we all look the same wearing a blazer in the lesson help me learn geography or maths or whatever it is or is it the fact that i'm uncomfortable does that stop me learning and this is where we talk about kind of those broader conversations about what consent looks like and whether it's rights-based or not is education something we're doing to young people is it something that we encourage young people to be interested and questioned and you know it's it's a really big it's a completely different conversation but the problem is is we've got a system in schools which to a broad extent gives messages of non-consent delivering lessons about how important consent is and then spending the rest of the day undermining it in some in some schools and that again this is not to say all teachers or all schools or anything like that but it is something that young people pick up on um and one quick story on this, um, and I tell this story quite a lot because it stuck with me. Um, I was talking around sexual harassment this time last year in a school, and one of the girls in the group, and this is something that came up loads, was teachers are more interested in how we look and our uniform being properly than how we behave. I was okay. Well, give me an example. And she said, "Okay, well, yesterday I was in the corridor, and one of the lads in my co- in the corridor called me a fucking slag," is what she said. So apologies for the language. Um, and she said the deputy head teacher walked by. And I said, "Oh, so what do they do? Do they intervene?" She said, "Yes." The deputy head teacher said, "Oi, tuck your shirt in," said the lad, and that was it. And then walked off. Um, and we had a, I had a conversation with her. She said, "So it was more important that he had a shirt out than how he spoke to me." And obviously, the teacher thought that he was doing an intervention, but the lad walked away going, "Ha ha! See, I've got told off to for." my shirt being out not for what i said so there was no intervention there and she was left feeling that it didn't matter i was actually doing staff training at school later on so we had a conversation about this um and we were talking about it um as a group about incidents like this and the feedback was is that it's easier is that they felt like the intervention had taken place they had spoken up they had intervened and stopped something um but how you say somebody that that like explain in that moment when you're, you're busy, that that's not okay to talk to somebody like that and, and pick those sort of things rather than that quick win of tuck your shirt in.
3: Yeah.
0: Of, of that putting that control into the situation sort of thing. And so I think it's really interesting about how, what, what do we want from school? What do we want to kind of achieve?
2: That's a tough one, man. And and I, mean, I suppose in, I mean, it's, pretend, it's, it's possible that that teacher didn't hear what was what the boy had said there. Like, who who knows? Like, but but I can I totally take the point that. Like, they did here
0: because we talked about that oh, oh really that you did
2: okay and that was I'm not that was, in a point was, of kind of
0: going why did you not intervene It
2: was yeah a conversation. but it's a much harder conversation to have isn't Definitely. it because it's like oh yeah. god how are we going to do this and that, and the, like sexist language one of the things that came out in everyone's invited is that it's often directed to teachers as well that female teachers are often being commented upon in in very um objectified terms um and, and i think
0: the thing is is that picking up on the little things the banter that's kind of, oh, well, it's just how people talk. It's fine. Actually, if the more you let those things go, the more likely the larger things that kind of happen. And it's about if you can tackle those small things, and it doesn't have to be a big intervention. That, that lad doesn't need to be put in isolation. It doesn't need to be put in detention. It, again, it's the difference between punishing somebody for a zero tolerance mm-hmm. and a zero tolerance being a case of using it as an opportunity for social justice to address it, to challenge it to say why that's not okay and we can do it because we've done it before we did it around race around racist language in school and we got rid of that we've done it to a large extent about language around oh that's gay you know you don't hear that anywhere near as much as you used to so we can do it we definitely can do
2: it yeah thank you i do feel hopeful that, that change is that change is possible here and it's not necessarily that we need to move away from um you know zero tolerance top-down approaches to behavior management at a system level I think some people could argue that but I think that what we need to see instead is a more diverse educational ecosystem where there are some schools that are like that because some teachers really seem to like that some kids seem to thrive in that situation some parents really like that very traditionalist way of doing things and they like the idea of blazers and top buttons being done up for some reason other people don't other people Aren't into a uniform. They're into something that's much more consent-based and somewhere where the young people have much more autonomy. And I think that I think that there sh- that, that there should be a range of educational establishments in every community. Where you can, where you, where you can choose something, you can choose a degree of autonomy that that suits your your tastes. But there's 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 an interesting point that you make in the book relating to this, where it says that you you write that I have a duty to point out that there is a downside to raising a fully autonomous, free thinking, confident child who knows their own mind and is able to voice what they do and don't want. We as parents are um often rewarded to having to live with them. A compliant child is easier to manage, and then you go on to say. I've had countless discussions with parents over the years who worry about how you manage a child who's playing up and who uses your message against you as they yell, you can't touch me or make me, you're not allowed to touch me if I don't say so, when you ask them to do something that they really don't want to do. And then you go on to say, yes, I can relate. And you talk about your daughter who can be, you know, you've had conversations like that, right? Definitely. Um, And then you go on to say, but this is the price you pay. Take solace in the fact that this is a result of your hard work paying off. And that's a fascinating question, isn't it? That sort of goes to the heart of this, which is that I think that you could argue that it's, I think that maybe a traditionalist teacher would argue that it's done in the name of efficiency, right? So it's like, if you, if you draw the line at uniform, and you say like, that you're having top buttons that you need to have your top button done up, and they call it broken windows um, yeah. theory, don't they? In like crime management, right? So that if you if you're having a conversation about top buttons, then you're not having a conversation about the fact that the kid was ten minutes late to the lesson and was throwing a glue stick at their friend or whatever, right? Um, and so I think that they would argue that it's just it makes for a more efficient use of time if we if we educate young people in this way. Um, and and I, I suspect that those people would take umbrage at the suggestion that that this top-down coercive approach to schooling is the root cause of the, these these huge problems that we're seeing with people just not understanding what consent is, because while while you while you might understand consent on a on an intellectual level um you actually need to live it (laughs) you need to live it and you talk about you talk about a number of of teachable moments you know and i think you sort of alluded to this earlier but for example from a parent's perspective like asking children like can i help you dress or undress or would you like to do it by yourself reminding them when playing games not to snatch and to you know the importance of using your words to ask for what you want asking them like do you want to wear the unicorns or the dinosaurs today and giving them giving them choice um, and that's what the, the, the sort of the, some of the things that we can do as as parents to help them to to understand what it's like to be given you know those th- three things of, of capacity choice and freedom but when it comes to back to the education system and this is a huge question but I mean what do you see as I mean so you were talking about Paul Dix and and that more sort of consensual approach to um to behavior management and so on um and again, you know, like the, so. So one of the I used to work for Paul, uh, and I know I know he's worked quite well, and I and I really really like it. Um, but for example, a lot of people who say that. So, so one of the things that 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 um, he, he advocates is is uh, like restorative justice as an yeah. approach to as an approach to uh, to dealing with behaviour management uh, issues, um, and it can be worked. It can be done really well, but there are also lots of examples of it being done really badly. Uh, and I've, I literally saw an example of somebody saying that on Twitter this morning that it was done as a way for, to to negate blame and shame and to put the problem to locate the problem in the child and and all all the rest of it. Um, so I'm not really quite sure where I'm going with this question, or even if it is a question. But it's just it's just like, to what extent do you think that that the coercion is the heart of the problem? I think. I don't think
0: schools are to blame for the societal issues, but I say we've got, as schools, you've got a microcosm where these things play out and you can have a very big impact in a small situation. In schools, we also have like the hidden curriculum of those things you learn, but you're never told. Um, And again, some of that is that kind of coercion we talked about is because I said so, because I'm more powerful than you. So I get to, and it doesn't matter whether that's true or not. It matters what young people feel. So, as I said before, is where the girls were telling me that teachers are more interested in the uniform than they are in how I feel. That's not true. I know because I spoke to the teachers. But that's how they feel. And that's a really important thing, because that's the message that they're being given every single day. Um, and again, it's is back to this question of what do we want education to be? What, what are the messages we want young people to leave the classroom with? And is it that if my top button's not done up, then I can't learn? Is that really the message? How how important is that? And again, it's those wider sort of kind of conversations about what what's the reason for the things that we do, and also what's the message? Um, because the message that this is really important when it comes to RSE, it's um, it's why language is so important. Is that the message that we think we're given to young people is not always the message that they hear? Um, so an example of that is I always advise in primary school not to use the word when we talk about families is that families love each other. We can talk about love, but A child who comes from a house where there's domestic violence, they're still told that they're loved. Mm. Usually when things calm down, they're probably told they're loved even more. That doesn't explain what love looks like. And if you say to a carpet full of children, families are where we all feel loved, isn't it? They all nod. If you say families are the place we feel safe, that's a really different message. The children who feel safe, you either feel safe or you don't. You can still feel loved and feel unsafe. Do you see what it's just yeah. a, more of a nuance, and, and I think that's what's really important is how things come across in translation. And I think the really, the, I think the brilliant thing that's going on at the moment, one really positive thing, is the stuff that's happening in primary. Is primary schools are so much better set up to to put all these things in place because you've got the same teacher who teaches all the subjects, um, but also part of primary school is still that behaviour and relationship management of playing with toys and sharing and working together and listening to each other and all those sort of skills. And so it fits really nicely with the relationship curriculum, but also it's a much easier space for, for teachers to model that really good consent. And the primary schools that I get to visit, they're so keen and they see the importance of doing emotional literacy. They see the importance of consent and talking about privacy and public spaces and private spaces. And cause they see those things play out far more quickly far more visually because with primary school children their private life is very public whereas with teenagers they all go off and do their own thing secretly in bedrooms and at the park and online whereas with primary schools you you get to see it all in that sort of way so you can have a much more uh, of an impact and you can really notice those young people that go from primary school into secondary school who've had a lot of this work and those who don't who've been using correct names for body language who've been talking about consent because you're starting to see those messages filter down when you then start talking about sexual consent, when they're, you know, 13 or whatever. Whereas that's something they've been talking about for the last five years. And so for some young people, whereas for others, it's brand new still. And so I think we're already making a change. And one of the really important places to make that change is actually much earlier than we, we kind of focus on the way you tackle sexual harassment. I'm when I've been doing um, primary school work in the last 12 months, I start off doing my training with teachers talking about everyone's invited, which most people think has got nothing to do with primary school because it hasn't. There's very little sexual harassment, but actually the messages that underpin it, they start here. The emotional literacy, the gender inequality, the how we frame things for girls and boys. Mm. That's where we need to kind of start. And so I think there's a lot more freedom there. Um, and I think the key with Paul Dix's work, it's, a, it's about relationships um based practice yeah um and again some people will really go in for that and see the benefit of it but it takes time and one thing that teachers haven't got is time
3: yeah
0: and that's not their fault you know it's because they're asked to do a million and one things but that's the thing that young people really need is the best intervention you can have with a young person is just to listen to them
2: yes yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And so let's just wrap this up. So, so just to bring this back to, back to, um, to in particular about, uh, consent as it relates to, to, um, sex and relationships. Um, the, this, the chapter ends with a discussion of like managing teenagers and making conflicts about how you feel. Rather than about using your authority to make things happen, and and for example, you know, like I was talking about this in a session I was running with a school yesterday, and when a kid arrives to your lesson, and there's there's just been a fight in the corridor or whatever it is, and they're all that's all they want to talk about, and you need to talk a letter, talk about whatever it is that you want to talk about, right? Some, like, something to do with your subject. And so that you can ask the question instead of saying like you need to talk about this, you need to not be talking about that fight, like you're putting yourself in a position of conflict with the young person. And instead, if you say like what can we do, like how can we build a bridge from where you are now in this moment to being able to be able to access the learning that's happening in this lesson, like what needs to happen to manage that transition? And when you when you frame the conversation in that way, you, you position yourself on the same side as the child, right? And it's the, so the conflict is taken out of it, and a very similar a very similar um, theme comes through in in this discussion at the end of at the end of that chapter on consent where you sort of say that the essence of consent is realizing that it's not not about how much you can get away with before somebody stops you it's about thinking like this is we're on the same team here Um, and when it comes to sex it shouldn't be about winners or losers therefore we need to move away from that language that you were talking about earlier about sex being competitive, competitive with lad points and the language around losing your virginity or like even worse as you write taking someone's virginity sex should never be about taking what you can with no fault for your partner's feeling or enjoyment instead we should keep in mind the message is my fun fun for everyone and then you, you end the chapter on that point it's a great message whether you're five or 15 regardless of whether we're talking about tickling or play fighting or sharing toys or partying or having sex is my fun fun for everyone works
0: yeah again that's another primary school message that's one of the ones that we put in really really early on but it's a message about consent and again it's one that i use a lot with parents is that when you say we need to teach five-year-olds about consent they're like oh because they think we're talking about sex no that's a message about consent and actually parents and teachers have been doing it for years but it's about making the link of understanding that's what we're talking about and um i remember reading an interview um and it was Oh God, well, who was it by? Cindy Gallup. She was being interviewed. Um, they were talking to like all the dragons off Dragon's Dens, so all these big people in business. And she's a, a media executive, I believe, an advertising executive, um, but actually does some stuff about uh, women's sex text now. Um, and they were talking about all these kind of dragons sort of thing and saying, what, what do you think skills young people need for the future? Um, and they were kind of saying about, you know, being able to make phone calls or being able to, you know, Stand up and make a presentation, or about being able to manage money and all these kind of things. And she said, um, We need to talk to them about sexual values. And everyone's like, Oh, I don't think you understood the question, kind of thing, the interviewer. And she was like, No, it's really important. She says that we, we're raising really strong, independent women, especially, um, but not in the bedroom. You know, as parents, we're very good. When you take your child to a, a, a birthday party, you kind of say, Right, before you go, you send them through the door, you say, Right, remember, remember your pleas and thank yous. Don't jump on the furniture. Be polite and have fun. We go through the rules. When we drop our teenagers off at their partners, we don't give them the same rules, but the same ones, remember you please and thank yous, is all about consent and asking permission. And, you know, don't jump. Well, jumping on the furniture is kind of the point if you're going to have sex. But you know what I mean? The other ones, you know, how we're polite and how we treat each other. We don't have that conversation with teenagers about their relationships. We certainly don't tell them to go and have fun. Or very rarely you know it's don't come back pregnant don't you know don't get in trouble don't get arrested it's all the things that you're not allowed to do rather than what you can mm. that makes sense
2: yes yeah so I, I like that is my fun fun for everyone and that makes me feel good because my son was going into a, to a, a, an English uh, GCSE exam yesterday and I said to him, "Have fun." <laughs> and he was like, "What? What, is, what are you even talking about?" But um, it makes me feel that I'm getting that the conversation right in some sense. Um, just on that,
0: there was um, I saw a TED talk by this science teacher who also did magic. He was a, ma- a magician as well. That's what was his hobby. And he was saying that he was using magic tricks to teach science, um, and it was it was brilliant. And he said something that stuck with me, and I really wish I knew who he was, but he was just. It was a talk that I saw because I wanted to go to the next talk sort of thing, but he just really captured me. He said that it's really wrong that we call break time playtime. Why do we do that? Playtime should be the bit when we learn it, because it's fun. We know that children learn through having fun. So why do we take all the fun out of it? Why is the fun bit when they're not learning? Why, well, you know, and I thought that's a really interesting way to reframe education is that playtime should be the bit where you're in the science lab, you're playing with stuff and you're throwing things in and you're making things you know experimenting in that sort of way yeah again i just thought it was an interesting twist on education
2: absolutely yeah the language that we use is dead important and the use of work like doing work. i remember i taught a girl once and her quiet act of rebellion was to for every subject in every lesson she would write the date at the top of the page and then write the word work and underline it (laughs) Um, and and it's it's horrible that work is work is effort like work is something that you do in exchange for money, because it's sort of a, a necessity. It's not something that you that you uh, that you look forward to. And yeah, absolutely. There's, there's. I think there's. You make a good point there. Right. So. Uh, let 's change let 's change track a little bit now. I really like in this podcast to get to know the person that i 'm speaking to, and you speak with immense uh, knowledge and wisdom and insight into this world of of sex and relationships education. Um, but I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about you and the journey that you've been on. What was your experience of school like? You might want to talk about your experience of, of, of RSE as well. Um, and also, I'm really interested in this idea of significant learning. Like, Are there any sort of moments that spring to mind that have, that have shaped you into the person that you've become? And, and, and how did you come to do the work that you, that you do? So huge, huge number of questions there yeah. in any order you wish.
0: People, I get asked a lot Is how do you get into doing what you do? Uh, And how do I do it? And one of the problems is there is no route. Most people who work in relationship and sex education either come through education, youth work or through kind of nursing is the kind of the three sort of areas. Um, My background is more the youth work. Um, I got into it completely by mistake. I did a degree in English literature and philosophy, um, which I loved. I really enjoyed um, and my plan was to go back and do a research track masters. I'd got a place to do my masters, which after you do your masters, you're automatically on doing the PhD afterwards. Um, and I took a year off to go traveling and got some sessional work with the, the youth offending team where I lived because my sister worked for the youth offending team. And she was like, oh, they're always looking for men doing sessional work. So come and do that. Um, and it was better than just working in a bar, which is what I also used to do. Um, I was also a bookmaker as well. As I used to work for Lad Books in right. the day and work in a bar at night when I was a student. But then um, I got this job working for youth, the youth offending team doing some sessional work. And they used to give me all the young old guys to work with. Um, and very quickly, because there wasn't many guys around sort of thing, um, I was running boys groups. Um, and I worked. I actually got a full-time job working for the prevention. There was because it was the Labour government in those days. There was lots of work in prevention. Was a big thing, and so we were identifying young people who were at risk of offending. And I was working with them. So uh, quite a lot of the offenders that we had who, for the young offenders team were working with their little brothers and sisters, essentially. Um, and again, I was supposed to only do that for a year and then go off travelling and go back to uni. And I loved it. I really enjoyed it Um, and I started volunteering at my local youth club. Um, I started running these boys groups and these groups with young people and I found that I could talk to teenagers. I could talk to children and young people and I enjoyed it and they seemed to like me Um, and so I kind of never went back and then I ended up staying for a couple of years doing that and then there was a job that came up for a um, the local youth service um, and the primary care trust. In those days, um, had a project together, and we had a, a drugs team, a healthy lifestyle team, and a sexual health team. And we used to go into all the schools um, in Coventry um, and delivering the schools there. And we worked in commentaries quite diverse, so there's schools that were predominantly Muslim, uh, lots of. Um, different ethnicities and religions in schools. Uh there was the Catholic schools, there was the E B D schools, the um S C N D schools, um, the private schools and the you know, the schools on housing estates that were really tough. And we used to literally rock up and go, Hi, I'm here to talk to you about sex and do a session, and then we'd maybe never see that group again, or we'd see them next year or whatever it was. And we'd be in different schools on different days. And we'd see nearly two hundred different kids every week um, doing workshops and things like that and so I did that for oh I don't know about seven years um in various forms but we also used to deliver training to staff and do health promotion and condom distribution and all that sort of stuff at the same time and all the youth work sort of stuff and so that's how I kind of got into it And it wasn't anything I ever planned for it wasn't anything I wanted to do it's something that I ended up doing and loved I really enjoyed talking to young people who found that talking about sex i had ways of framing things that made sense without it being kind of shameful or but actually yeah, it's amazing how much things have changed i remember in those days everything was condom demos and you know stis it's very rare i talk about those things now most of the stuff that i do so i don't know if you can hear the banging but that's my window cleaner is clean all oh, right okay, my...
2: okay that's <laughs> fine it's got a little bit of atmospherics
0: so uh, yeah um <laughs> His name's Paul, he's lovely, so shout out to my window cleaner. Um, yeah, so um, it's changed so much. It's very rare that I do STIs and contraception these days. Most of the stuff that I talk about is around attitudes and values. It's, it's around social media and, and mobile phones and pornography and um, where do we get ideas about sex from. It's all that attitude stuff rather than the kind of condoms and chlamydia sort of stuff that it used to be. In those days, we used to chlamydia screen kids. You know, you used to give out free key rings and badges and pants that said chlamydia on them and stuff if you got tested, and everything was being tested. There were so many freebies and things that you used to give out, whereas we don't do that anymore.
2: Right. And so now you do this, this independently, essentially.
0: For the last um, eleven years, I've been independent. Although now I've got my first proper job that I've had for eleven years, I've, I'm actually employed now by a university. So I'm a lecturer at uh, the University of Bedfordshire. On I teach applied social sciences on the childhood and youth course.
2: Ah, okay, right. Hence, so, yeah. So you're saying that you had some some marking to do today that I'm keeping. Yes. So I'm marking you dissertations
0: from. at the moment, or should be, but I'm talking to you instead. Yeah,
2: any excuse to to avoid the marking. I, I've been yeah. there,
0: done that. But one thing that's really good is they've just redone um, our, rewritten our youth work course, our masters for youth work, where you get UJNC, and they've just asked me to write a unit on relationship and sex education. So we've got our own relationship and RSE unit,
2: right? Right, brilliant. And so so moving into this the the final section um i often ask people three questions what are we getting right currently because often like the nature of a rethinking education type conversation you focus on the problems and we've talked about a number of very hefty ones today but what's what, what what positives are there what do you see where as you go out into all of these hundreds of schools that you've been in what do you think we're getting really right currently and this this could be about sex ed or it could be about any, any aspect of schooling, however you want to answer that question. The second one is like, what do you think is the major problem that we need to address currently? Again, you can apply that at a number of different levels. And then how are we going to fix that problem is the third question. So okay. positives first. Um,
0: well, well, I've mentioned one already. I think there's some really interesting stuff happening in primary schools and they can really see the everyday value of doing the relationship education sort of stuff um, and how much that helps their children and young people um that they're working with and they get to see that really visually sort of thing um the improvements it makes quite quickly so i think that's really positive um i think one of the other things that i think is positive is that i was at a conference yesterday and there were so many different people all talking about the same movements around relationship and sex education and the importance of it the welsh um guidance um we were looking at that yesterday and That's been put together um, by um, Emma Reynolds, um, and she has a background in gender, sexuality, and youth work. Um, And the guidance is shaped as relationship-based practice. It's 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 rights-based. It's young person-focused. It's co-created with young people. It's it's consent-based. It's it's everything you would want it to be because it's written by somebody. <clears throat> or it's been shaped by somebody none of the guidance is perfect but it's probably the best one that we've got at the moment because it's it's written from the perspective of what we know works rather than what we think we you know rather than what we can do what's allowed if that makes sense
1: mm-hmm.
0: um and so i think that's really interesting um but equally the more people i hear talk about sexual harassment in schools and what's needed the same messages are coming out it's around consent it's about gender inequality it's about um it being whole school approaches and that zero tolerance doesn't have to look like isolation booths it can look very differently about calling people in rather than calling them out and a lot of people are saying things on the same sort of page and it feels like there's a movement building in that way um the other thing that i find really positive is the voices of young people um I uh, I was doing some work in a primary school, talking to year fives, and you've got young people in that group who are talking about being inclusive around LGBT. They're asking questions about being trans. They're asking questions about can men get married and things like that, and they're really okay talking about it and they know about it mm. and. There's no shame there. There's no problem there. They're really chirpy and they're like, "Yeah, you get to be who you want to be," and that's really important. And whilst that might scare some adults, it's so nice to see that. Yes, um, it's really, really good to see children of that age being able to manage those sort of messages. Which, and Ned didn't have any doubt that they could. If it's the people have those doubts, and that I think that's a really positive thing because I you can see those children move through and. I was doing, I was in another school doing some of, um, last year during lockdown when they were all in bubbles, I was doing like year group assemblies and then I was back in the same school and I had pupils come back to like a drop-in session and some of the questions they were asking about their own identities and the critical thinking they've got about social issues and around feminism and around sexual harassment and you know the things on TV and there is this kind of There are some young people who are so politically minded, and I think that's really important and really nice to see, but also that they want to take the time to come and talk to you about them sort of thing and ask you questions and kind of say, I've been thinking about this. Um, And I don't think we give young people enough credit for the kind of things they are talking about and thinking about themselves. Yeah, they talk about all the nonsense stuff as well, because we all do, but I think there is, we don't always give young people the credit they deserve. And I think... Um, if things are going to change it will be pushed by some really proactive young people
2: yes yeah absolutely and that's something that I'm seeing a lot of as well through this through this podcast and through the conversations that I've been having around it Um, as young people find how to take their place at the the debating table as it were and, and to have their voice heard and, and I think and social that's...
0: media is a big part of that. Sorry to talk over you, but I think quite often social media and young people using social media is always seen as such a negative. Mm. Whereas the creativity that young people show through lockdown and you know some of the stuff they were doing on TikTok and, and YouTube and things like that, but equally, how young people are using it as a platform to build campaigns or to call things out or to challenge authority, I think is really, really important. And we don't always give that enough we're you know social media is this demonized bad thing whereas actually there's a real it's a real tool for you know um speaking up for marginalized group and giving young people a voice i think that's yes. not just tapped into
2: yeah and there's the the new generation uh of, of young people that is coming through are much more comfortable with this whole conversation the the conversation that we're having um around around trans uh people and gender identity and sexual identity kids are much more flexible and and open to just like accepting people for who they are i think it's often older people people in our generation and above who are really struggling with this with this period of quite rapid sort of transition that we're going through um as a culture uh, it's really interesting to see but i absolutely echo that yeah i think the kids are all right as they say
0: yeah i think so
2: so th- what's the ch- the major challenge um i think personally about rse is yeah.
0: there is a very loud minority group of people who are anti-rse um and there is you know there's a it's part of the rise of the right wing and things like that but you can see in america with the you know the uh the kind of pushback against abortion rights yeah. in America and LGBT rights as well, because they're connected. And this is something that we kind of don't always see. And even the same sort of messages that are happening in the UK as well. And there is around the trans de- trans debate, there is no debate, but um as it's kind of called is recently Boris Johnson spoke out and said that um he didn't think that teenagers have capacity to say what they want around their gender. They can't make that decision. The problem is is that capacity is the thing that underlies the gillick Fraser competence, <clears throat> excuse me, which is the rights young people have to make medical decisions for themselves, which came about through the Fraser guidelines um, where, where um, Lord Fraser decided that young people had the right to access contraceptive advice and treatment um, before they were 16. Um, if you remove young people's right capacity to make decisions about their gender, it then questions their right around contraceptive rights mm-hmm. and the people who are pushing the anti-trans debate are uh, also want to fight this bit as well so they're linked um and these messages that are coming out are mainly out of america um around kind of the anti-lgbt and removing contraceptive rights that's the end game is to remove those sort of rights from women
2: um, can can um, you explain how, so you said earlier that they're, they're linked, this overturning of Roe versus Wade and and, and um, LGBTQ rights. Can you explain how those things are linked?
0: Okay, I'm not an expert on American law, but I believe they come under the same sort of idea around the right to privacy, um, which is written into their constitution. They're on the same legal premise. Um, and if you remove one, you can, you've got the chance to remove the other and challenge the other is the kind of the issue. I see. Um, and because yeah america's a very strange place when it comes to the rules that they have and it means that states will be able to make their minds up about what they want to do about these sort of things and if you remove the the, the kind of rules from the, the senate then it, it it gives rise lower down to make those decisions and if roe versus wade is pushed back it will be very likely that other states it'd be amazing that it will be the first generation of women will have less rights than their parents did which is just bizarre yeah But also you've got, it's going to be a bigger punishment for providing an abortion for somebody than it would be to have raped them. That's bizarre. And it's it's just, it doesn't make any sort of sense. Um, But relationship and sex education in America is another thing, is that they don't have to teach factual knowledge in most states in America. It's just bizarre. But that's another argument. But the problem is, is some of those arguments that are happen in America, they're actually filtering into the UK. You know, you had the education secretary say that if a young person is trans or discloses they're trans, they should notify people's parents. And Why in an ideal world, parents should be involved in those conversations. We also know that a huge proportion of people who are young people who are homeless are LGBT because they've been pushed out by their parents because it's not safe. We have honour killings in the UK in all denominations. Um, some parents are not OK with their children. It's not safe.
1: Yeah.
0: And so there's some really worrying messages that are there. And I think one of the big problems we have is that groups like Stonewall and Mermaids, who are support groups for LGBT people, but Mermaids for young people and young people's families, are kind of being painted in the media as if they're some sort of, terrorist group sort of thing that they're trying to come for your children um and it's it's if you look at the dialogue that's taking place a lot of it is very similar to what was happening in the late 80s before section 28 came into place um but instead of it being around being gay it's now about being trans and it's the same arguments um and i think that's really really quite worrying from that perspective but unfortunately when it comes to relationship and sex education there is no counter voice when any of these kind of incidents happen or you know it turns out that school's teaching something or is teaching children about being inclusive or around kind of uh, naming body parts or whatever it is and there's this kind of did you know they're teaching this to five-year-olds kind of daily mail stories yeah there is no voice in the media where somebody's going and stopping like we said in holland earlier on and saying well no let's just slow down a minute evidence is this and this is why we do it and this is the point of doing it and that's not true is it you know and and there's no sort of there's no sort of counter argument to it there is no positive stories of did you see what young people are doing do you see what they're teaching here and how important this is and how this school's tackling sexual harassment or consent or it's always kind of framed in the oh my god did you know they're teaching this about consent and you know it's a really strange sort of narrative that's going on and it's a shame that the statistics say that most parents want young people to be informed and they want help from school and yet we still have stories that push back on it and it doesn't seem to have that and that's the thing that worries me and I think there is there is links between the toxic masculinity the incel community the right wing and the rise of right nationalism and the idea of abortion rights and anti-trans and anti-LGBT it is connected um, and the messages that are being pushed around social media and through the mainstream press are connected. And that is a worry that we could have, you know, we've still not got conversion therapy pushed through. You know, it, that's been something we've been talking about for 10 years, if not longer. And still, that's still a thing that's happening in this country. That's,
2: yes. It's that's hard, really worrying. It's hard to understand. Um, where that comes from is it do you think that it comes from a a, a concern that some people are sort of like over sexualizing childhood that we need to maintain their innocence for longer or something that we're somehow politicizing childhood um by teaching these things is that is that where the concern comes from do you think
0: i think it's not a new argument is that as soon as we created kind of childhood in this um idea of this age of innocence which don't forget childhood used to be where you worked in mines and up chimneys, you know, childhood has only been something that was a privilege for the rich, um, historically. Um, and I'm not suggesting we should go about that. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) Um, but I think there's every time there's, you get to a point of of huge social change, there is a pushback. Um, and there was the fear in the eighties that if you allowed gay relationships or gay marriage, that that would destroy the family no it just meant gay people started having families you know it's it's complete nonsense Mm. and now we're having the same debate around trans people um it's the same arguments the places that aren't safe is toilets and changing rooms and they're trying to groom children whereas it's we do sexualize children but it's adults that do that not children is that how often do we hear you know parents or you know people say to children oh you're going to break hearts when you're when you're older you'll have all the boys chasing after you or all the girls you know who want you. they're five what why you what do you mean you know teaching young children that the people who fancy men and there's people who fancy you know there's two men can get married and two women can get married and that's got nothing to do with sex does that mean that if we teach about you know men and women get married and have children then what's the difference what is one sexual and one not? It's, do you know what I mean? It doesn't seem to add up. And we do sexualize children in really unhealthy ways with this kind of gender stereotypes
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, from really early age. And we should stop that rather than show people, you know, the, the diversity that we have in our relationships and the families that come with. You know, we get children to draw their house and who lives in it. And we talk about the different families. It's not just gay families that have two mummies, you know, my daughter lives half with me and half with her mother and she's got another dad in another house and sisters and because families are blended now that's really quite normal Mm. and children go back and forth some children just live with mom some children just live with dad some children live with grandparents some children you know live with aunts and uncles some children go 50 50 that's okay it's just talking about the diversity of families as long as the family's the place you feel safe where, where does the sex bit come into it? I don't, I don't understand.
2: Yeah, I don't either. I'm, I'd, I'd like to understand it. So, because so, obviously understanding that, and, and there, was, there was some case recently, wasn't there? There was lots of people campaigning outside a school for weeks on end because of something to do with the, how they were teaching RSE. Uh, was that with the people objecting on religious grounds?
0: Um, yeah, that was about the No Outsiders um, campaign, which was actually, it's about
2: teaching the Equality
0: Act. Um, it's, as um, it Andrew Moffat, um, he's got a program. And it's based on the Equality Act. And they each week they do an assembly about one of the other protected characteristics, which includes religion you know, and disability. Um, but they also talk about sexuality as part of that. And there's a picture that's put up every day and they tell stories and it's all age appropriate. And it's, it's brilliant. It's amazing. Um, but again, it was one of these things that was pushed by if you okay, I hate talking about this because it sounds like some conspiracy theory, but a lot of the anti the messages around that came from an organization called Stop uh, SRE, um, which is um a religious organization but gets lots of fun from the right wing. Um and so the people who were pushing these messages about what the school was doing, um, it was actually the Muslim community who pushed back on religious grounds about teaching around same sex relationships. And so the right wing got a double win because they got to get one over on Muslim community and make them look bad but also they were doing the anti-LGBT stuff it was uh, it's a real mess and it was a real shame because um I've heard Andrew Moffat speak a couple of times and he's brilliant he's so brilliant uh you know the whole point is ev- no outsiders everybody's welcome it's you know that's all it is it's a message which is about diversity and inclusion for everybody yeah. um
2: it's fascinating, isn't it, that that should be that that itself is, it can can be seen as a divisive message by some people that they 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 they're on the they're on the other side. They want outsiders. They want they want to maintain those divisions. I guess.
0: Well, I think that is we quite often think of rights, and again, this goes back to like feminism. Again, we said earlier on is that it's not pie, it's not cake. Is that you having more rights doesn't mean there's less rights for me. It's whereas. No, that's how cake work if you eat half a cake there's only half left it's that's not how rights work mm. it's not a zero-sum sort of game in that sort of way um and yeah i, I do find it really odd how um so I, i've had you know push back on some of the primary school programs i've had as well because they're inclusive um in daily mail every time my name my name appeared there a few times it's always the controversial johnny hunt i I don't i don't understand what's controversial oh i didn't
2: realize i was speaking with the controversial johnny hunt
0: yeah (laughs) um i should put that on my business card yeah um it's a really strange thing um but it is it's not very nice being on the end of it sure um you know i've had reporters turn up on a friday evening to my front door whilst we're having dinner um to talk about things and uh, it was i remember this particular organization this uh they um i remember looking on their website they'd written an article about me um and how i was a danger to children because i was teaching them about inclusive RSE, and then underneath there was an article around why we should allow parents to smack children and you just kind of go in like i i don't understand (laughs) so you know it's it was really kind of odd um and in some ways that is it's funny to look at it from that point of view but it's not funny and i think the unfortunately the guidance the way it's been written in the uk puts a lot of onus on schools to stand above the parapet and take the risks because the guidance speaks about by the end of primary and by the end of secondary and it's up to schools to teach it age appropriately um based on their community um, that doesn't that doesn't fill you with much confidence about what you're okay and what's not okay and what's age appropriate what isn't mm. and what's sex education what's relationship education and and when you should be teaching these sort of things there's very little guidance there the onus has been pushed back onto schools to take the hit whereas the government can kind of sit back and go oh see that's not what we meant sort of thing it's and there was very little support for uh parkfield was it Partfield primary school when things hit um and I think that's the the danger is that there's some really interesting, really positive things happening and the minority of voices are pushing
2: back on some things
0: um, that are being supported by the media because there's no voice, counter voice is kind of happening.
2: Yeah, so that sort of leads into this into the third of these three questions about the fix for that. What's your sense of, I mean, you're painting a a very complicated picture. It's highly charged debates, highly politicized, lots of strong feelings on both sides and so on. Um, What do you see as a way that we can, that we can navigate our way through this period of time?
0: Um, I think the difference is, is that I can go to a parent meeting where I'll speak to, you know, an average parent meeting is most schools, you kind of have 25 parents turn up sort of thing um some schools you have 80 and it's lovely Some you have four <laughs> it's those. um doing them online is quite helpful actually and you can have a conversation like we've had where we talk about consent and we talk about why we do it the way we do we talk about body parts and why it's really important and you can go through and explain why you're doing what you're doing and then people go oh okay it, it, me saying vulva is really uncomfortable but i can understand why i should do and i'll do my best I'll have a conversation with grandma we'll talk about those sort of things but a lot of the things that are introduced to schools and introduced um, for parents is they just kind of go this is what we're doing there's no explanation there's no sort of support and there's no there's no i've never seen an article in any left or right-wing media that says oh isn't it fabulous what they're doing in schools now they're teaching five-year-olds about consent and it's really important from this point of view and this is what you can do at home it's always, oh, did you know what they're teaching? And if we could change that, I remember going to a round table event at Westminster when they were talking about the RSE guidance. And it's, that was the point that I made um, to the politicians that were there that were shaping it. I said, we need to, you need to have a media campaign. You need to say and try and get the media on board to say why this is really important. This is what stops domestic abuse. This is what stops sexual exploitation. This is what stops sexual harassment. This is what keeps young people safe. Mm. You need to be selling it. And they never did. And exactly what happened has happened. Right. Um, but again, the conference I was in yesterday is there needs to be better training. But there's not enough training for teachers anyway. Yeah. And there's not enough time and there's not enough resources.
2: That's something that that I was thinking earlier when you said there there is no route into doing what you're doing, that it's sort of, it's almost like it's just sort of bubbles up as a necessity where people working in nursing or in youth work just say, hang on a minute, there's a, there's a, there's a gap here, like the, the PSHE provision is clearly not good enough and we need experts who can, who can fill this gap and but but that's clearly just sort of this this like ad hoc sort of like just an organic thing that is sprouting up here and there. But it's clearly there must be big black spots in certain areas of the country where there aren't any any people yeah. working and doing the sorts of things that you and, and your colleagues do.
0: So I was really lucky that I worked for this program for, that was funded by the youth service. It meant all schools in the local area could find that service in. Wasn't it? They were like, how much? It's free because it's paid for. And that was brilliant. But... I don't think it should all be done just by outside speakers it needs to be done internally as well and just like what we see now is you've got this one fabulous teacher who goes I see this is really important I I you know I want to do something to change it and they have to ask permission from senior leaders and they either get the buy in or they don't and they spend their evenings and their weekends online going to webinars and paying for things themselves and buying books you know and buying resources and you know spending time on twitter going has anybody got a lesson plan on this and making friends and sharing but there's no support for it and there's only so long you can do that without that buy-in from senior leaders yeah. um but then equally this is where it gets into that bigger conversation about what do we think education should be and as i said earlier i think you know get rid of behavior policies put relationship-based policies in and suddenly you've got a whole school approach that is. This curriculum is not something that you teach once on a, every Tuesday, you know, fifth period. It's something that we do as a school. It's something that we have right. through our, our key you know, objectives. It's through our policies. It's through our uniform policy. It's through our student engagement. It's through our behavior policy. It's through everything. It's how we work walk around the corridors. It's how we, you know, we frame everything. But at the moment, we we educate school children to pass their GCSEs or their sacks rather than get them to be critical thinkers about the world you know that's and again i'm not saying that that's what teachers do because i've seen i've been in lessons with teachers who are doing that really good work but that's not how it's the system's not set up yes. that way it's not framed that way Is we value schools the kids that pass exams that can go to that school and go to that university and get off that doesn't mean that they're a safe person to go to university with or that they treat people kindly or they, you know, they've got those person skills or care.
3: Yeah.
0: And I think then the, the value, you know, one, the message I say to my daughter is that I'd much rather than a teacher tell me that she's kind than tell me that she's gone A, you know, that's what I would like to hear. Absolutely. You know?
2: Yeah. And so, and, and that goes, what what you're talking about sort of goes against like the direction of travel in recent years, the, the uptick in sort of very, very, um, uh, no excuses approaches to behavior management. And it is very top down. It's my way or the highway. And if you're wearing the wrong colored socks, you, then you get to sit in an isolation room for the day and what have you. There's a lot of that around at the moment. Um, and so, so if you could wait, this is a bit. Maybe this a final question. So let, imagine that you were made to be like whatever it is—the RSE czar, right? <laughs> we're in the age of czars. Maybe it's not such a good term following what Russia has been, not too recently. Um, and you, you were given a carte blanche and a, and a decent budget. What, what would you do in, in at a systemic level? Because you're saying that it's not the fault of teachers; these are systemic problems. So what, what, what might you implement at a system level to? To turn this ship around.
0: oh Where to start? Um, I think again, it's about for me. I like I'm a big fan of relationship based practice. I really, really am. And understanding how tough it is to be a teenager and what they've got going on and what we expect of them. Um, the one thing that you could give staff in school would be time. Um, that's the one thing that they need to be able to do all the million of things that we're asking them to do. It'd be really, really nice if schools were this like mini community where you, you had a pastoral lead who that was their only job. They didn't have to do anything else. You had somebody who's, you know, not necessarily a school counsellor, but you had a social worker in school who was helping manage some of those projects. And you had a whole pastoral team who could be delivering some of this material, you know, who could be working on this. And that what the pastoral team had, the lessons that you delivered would feed into that. And there was this kind of, as I say, this relationship-based um, get rid of your behavior policy, put a relationship policy in place as your core of your school. And then the lessons that we teach fit. And the RSE isn't this thing we do once a week, it's something that we have ingrained in how we teach other lessons. Um, you know, when it's World AIDS Day, why can't, when you walk into the geography classroom, we have, you know, we talk about HIV around the world and how different it is? We can do math problems around it. We could do, you know, do you know what I mean it doesn't have to be. We wear a red ribbon and nothing. It can be campaigns that are led throughout the entire school in every single classroom. And we can change the curriculum instead of it being, you know, geography, maths and science. That it's suddenly something a bit more organic and more creative, I think, that's people led. That education is something that's not done to children, it's done with them. Um, That we talk about critical thinking skills for young people and we get them to challenge what they're reading, what they're learning and where it came from. Mm-hmm. um that comes with decolonizing the, the curriculum as well and that do we teach i thought it was really interesting that there was that thing recently where you had the was it school in nottingham they were writing discursive you know um using convincing language to write discursive kind of letters and they wrote to boris johnson around they did these kind of imaginary essays about complaining about how it was dealt with and how we could have done better the, the covid response and the government response was we don't politicize we don't politicize education. Um it's not okay. They shouldn't be criticizing the government. Yeah, they should. That's that's teenagers' jobs to call into question the authority above them. That's their one purpose. That's what teenagers should be doing. Yeah. And we should be giving them the skills to do it. Um, and again, my big thing is about this idea that um I've kind of stolen that I'm a big advocate for, is what we call sexual citizenship, is this idea that giving young people the skills, the life tools, the critical tools in order to be able to manage their relationships. Um, and we prepare them very well for this kind of academic world of get your grades, get your A-levels, go to university sort of idea. Um, but we don't always give them the skills to manage their personal relationships. And I think that is a much better thing to do because if you got those ones, these ones follow, you know, so I don't know. I think I have too many different ideas and I can't really always put them into
2: no, a <laughs> cohesive idea. I think you've done a good job. So there's, there's, there's a book behind you on the shelf I can see. Is that the book called Sexual Citizenship? Is oh yeah, this is that? my
0: lovely bookshelf with my Lego on. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is it. It was a study done. I think it was the University of Columbia. Um, Two researchers, um, well, they had a whole team, Jennifer Hirsch and Seamus Khan. Um, they've actually got a toolkit that they've just launched, but it's, it's aimed at universities. Um, but they're not the only people that are talking about it. that's where I first read about it. And there's quite a lot of stuff talking about um, this idea of citizenship for young people, which is all about teaching young people their rights. Um, and again, I find it really interesting that the new guidance for relationship and sex education, it's isn't a rights based approach in in England um the Fraser and gillett competence I mentioned earlier are not mentioned in there which is the one it's a really important right that young people have to access concept of advice and treatment it's not mentioned anywhere in the in the document
2: and so how would you characterize that if something isn't rights based what is it based on
0: <sighs> it's a really good question what is it based on um when they talk about what healthy relationships look like they talk about virtues about honesty and which yeah we want people to be honest but a virtue is something that you are you're either virtuous or you're not it's not a skill that you can learn and i think it's about reframing that is to being good at relationships is you're not either good at it or bad at it um people who are good at it still get things wrong it's just something you can practice empathy is not a trait that you're born with it's something you practice and you learn no it's an argument i have with my daughter my daughter says oh i'm not patient well you can be you have to practice it you it's something you become you know it's something that you can improve at you know you can become a good listener you can become these things
2: um are they not virtues though when you said a moment ago that virtues if this patience not is that even a phrase patience is a virtue yeah
0: but i think that's the thing is they're painted as being virtuous which kind of has this moral tone to it right um and again one of the ones that that was originally in there but i think i need to check but i think they took it out was um self-sacrifice was one of the key virtues of healthy relationships which you kind of go that's that's not that's not a good thing really um but by calling them virtues they have this kind of moral tone to them whereas that's not how relationships are. Relationships are skills based. And if we turn it from being something that you're either a good person or a bad person to being something about how we behave and how we practice these things, it becomes far. School becomes a learning environment rather than you being a good or goodie or a baddie. Um, I'm a big fan of the classroom should be a space of learning, which means you can get things wrong. You can mess things up. You can say something that's offensive and be challenged on it. It doesn't mean you get carte blanche to say whatever you want, but it means when you say something, you can somebody can stop and say, okay, that's a really interesting question, but can you think about how you frame that, why that might make somebody feel upset or might it be difficult for somebody to hear? I think it's a really important thing to talk about, and we can pick it. You're not expecting teenagers to have all the answers because the adults certainly haven't got all the answers, but instead what you're giving them is a space mm. where they can practice these skills. They can try them out, get them wrong, and have somebody who can support them and again quite often if we have this zero tolerance approach then what we do is we exclude somebody we put them in isolation and then that just makes them feel like they're the victim that they've been hard done by and it doesn't change how they feel about whatever happened now i'm just really angry that you got me in trouble not that i did something wrong whereas if we have this kind of social justice this kind of this uh, this idea of calling people in then what we're instead we're doing is we're saying right okay I can understand why this happened but can you see why what you said or what you did might have caused the other person harm what can we do better how can we challenge this how can we do things better um and again it's something interesting that comes out of the, the book in uh, universities is what they were finding is that one person felt like they'd been assaulted and the other person didn't realize that what they were doing was not okay because that's how they've been taught that's what girls like that's how it works And there needs to be an opportunity to stop somebody and say, when you do this, that's not okay," And for somebody to go, oh, no, that's not okay, is it? And change. Whereas quite often what we do instead is go, you've been kicked out. We either ignore it and nothing happens or we kick somebody out. There's not that bit in between where we challenge, you know, in a positive way and try and change somebody's behaviour. And I think that's one key thing that's kind of missing. But again, in school, that takes time. And you need to have that freedom and the space in your curriculum that you've not just got a lesson plan that you've got to go from A to B, but you've got space where you can have conversations and you can go off track and you can bring them back again. And you can, yeah. So, one thing I love about what I do is I don't have the same sort of lesson plan that teachers do. I can go in there, and I'm I, a really good session for me is where I don't get through half of things that I planned because we ended up talking about something completely different and they just started asking questions. Or we had a really good conversation. But I've got space to do that because I haven't got to get a grade at the end of it or I haven't got to do the next step. Do you know what I mean? It's, um, Yeah, I think it's about that bigger question, both for parents and for teachers, is what do I want for my, my teenager? What do I want for them for their first relationship? What do we want out of education? And what are we doing to get there? Because at the moment it feels like what we want is not what we're doing.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and so I mean, I, I I think that that's a great note to to wind this up on. The, 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 this this call to to create space, and like you say, space like space and time is really what we're talking about, and time is the most precious resource of all in schools, and it's all about sort of jostling priorities, and because there's no GCSE in sex education, right? There's no GCSE in how well you understand consent then it's not prioritized in schools because what we treasure what we measure and so on and i think that to in order to create the case for space as it were you need to firstly recognize that this is super super important and the thing that i'm taking away from this conversation is something that i don't think that i had fully realized before which is just how how central this whole thing is at the start of the conversation we sort of talked about like to what extent is this is this like the the foundation of all of these problems that, that, that we're seeing out in society that we've that we've talked about uh, in this conversation the the root cause of that is that we're not getting this right in schools and sex education is too often seen as a as a bolt-on and and especially like you said we're focusing more on relationships than sex itself should be absolutely a beating heart of what we're doing and if we can accept that as the as the as the priority like that's how we get that's how we create a society where everyone's invited isn't a thing where there aren't 50 odd mps who are being you know investigated for sexual misconduct where everyday sexism and me too and all the rest of it aren't a problem if we can if we can think like what like starting with the end in mind i've been doing this really interesting um Uh, exercise recently with some people from within the rethinking Education community where we're doing a thing called backward designing edutopia right so we're starting with like what's the kind of world that we want to create what's the kind of society that would be like and then work backwards from that and think what kind of an education system would produce a positive society so that we're not just trying to to fix the problems that we currently face but we're actually creating this an education system that will will produce a very different kind of world Um, and it seems to me that the, the things that you talk about and there's so much more in the book as well that we could have talked about there's some really interesting discussions around sexting and flirting and 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 language you know there's a fascinating bit about you know the, the use of the word straight which yeah. often isn't really recognized as being as problematic as it really as it really is there's loads more stuff that we could have have talked about and i thoroughly recommend to anyone uh, to get a hold of the book and to read it and to act on it um and so thank you for for taking the time to to speak with me and share your thoughts so i've got honestly so much to take away from this conversation and for writing this brilliant brilliant and urgent and necessary book um i really would like to see that that people start to to take this much more seriously um and to follow your your wise words so thank you
0: thank you i want to tell you one more story i don't mind whether you keep it or not but it's uh, just something that occurred to me. It's something that I I was teaching a unit recently. It's a mix of social work students and uh, childhood and youth students, and it's about relationship-based practice. And when I teach, I tell a lot of stories, as you've probably noticed. Um, and I'm a storyteller. Um, I remember I was at the school not a couple of years ago, and I quite often turn up at schools when I'm going to be delivering a little bit early because it's really interesting to be in reception when everyone's coming in when it's really quite chaotic. Just to see what kind of school it is and see how they manage things. And there was a teacher who I'd met a few times before. She was one of the deputy teachers, and she's one of those teachers that she could be 30 or she could be 80 because she looks like her diet is cigarettes and coffee and that's it, sort of thing like the notice Redding diet. And she's got this demeanor of being really mean and angry, but it's not like that at all. And all the kids love her because you know where she is with them and she's really fair. And she was doing the kind of lates as they came in and she was writing As and she knew everyone's name. Every single young person that came in late because um, it was already their assembly on. They came in late and she was marking them down and she knew and knew every single one by name, which is really interesting because that doesn't always happen.
1: Mm.
0: And I'm sat in the reception and opposite me is the hall and I can see the hall and the hall doors are opposite the front door to come in. And about 15 minutes later, um, this lad walks in. And you can see him walking across kind of the car park to come in. And he just looks like a rain cloud. He's tired, he's draggled he looks like he's not slept, and he's a bit scruffy looking, and he's wearing trainers. Um, and you can see this teacher in the assembly hall clock him as he comes through the door. And he storms out through the doors whilst the assembly's going out, and before this lad's even walked through the front doors, Starts yelling at him, going, Why are you late? You're always late, you're not turned up on time. You know, you should come, you should be prepared. You need to take your education more seriously. And why are you wearing trainers? And, and just like going after him. And I'm sat there listening. And obviously this lad must be late a lot and he's probably a bit of a troublemaker and all those sort of things. And you know. And suddenly the teacher, the the lady, suddenly swoops in from nowhere. She's kind of in between them. Um, and she gets there just in time because as this lad um, is being told about his trainers and how he needs to come prepared for school and being told how disrespectful he is, he's not even spoken a word yet. You can see him just about to tell this teacher to go away politely. Mm. And she manages to get there just as he's about to burst this lad and sweeps in and goes, oh, thank you, sir. I'll deal with this and swoops it. And this male teacher kind of has got this moment where he's been kind of cut off in full flow, doesn't really know what to do. And she kind of whisks the lad away. And you can kind of, I'm going, I was sat there going, is she going to yell at him? Is she going to tell him off? Because you could see on his lips that he was just literally about to tell this teacher to fuck off, essentially. Mm. And I was kind of thinking, has she saved him or what? You know, what's kind of going on? And she just went, "Is your mum still not very well?" Was the first thing she said to him. Wow. Turns out his mum is not very well, and he's caring, and he has to take his little sister to school. If you go to primary school you you're not allowed in until kind of the bell goes and you as a parent have to stand with your child at primary school primary school's five minutes down the road so you had to wait till nine o'clock to let his little sister go into school to then walk to school which means he's late the reason he's wearing trainers is it's raining and he's got holes in his school shoes because he can't afford them she knows all this the first thing she does she pulls out breakfast out of a bag she says oh, i'll sort it out and i had a chat to her at break time she phoned the primary school to allow when he turns up with him, to, to ask if he can go in early. He can't do that. He's a 14, 15-year-old lad. Mm. He can't ask the school those sort of things. He hasn't got that sort of you know, ability, you know, the assertiveness to be able to ask those sort of things. You've got this lad who's struggling to look after his mum, struggling to look after his sister, and he's not even walked through the door. And because he's wearing trainers and because he's 15 minutes late, suddenly he's the bad one you know and I think I tell that story because it's a really good emphasis of which teacher do you want to be which professional how do you want to work with that young person and I can understand why both behave the way they do I've seen them you know I know what it's like when you've got a young person who doesn't seem to care but actually we don't always know what's going on for teenagers for young people's lives and I think that's why relationship and sex education is so important because it's about relationships are complex they're difficult and they don't get easier as you get older and the experts in the room teaching don't have perfect relationships we're all struggling with this we find it difficult to talk about our feelings we find it difficult to talk with our partners to manage our feelings when we're angry and we're tired we, we struggle with all those things whereas if you're a maths teacher the more you teach maths the better you you know it's maths do you know what I mean it doesn't go anywhere it's geography whereas with this you haven't got the answers and you've got to stop pretending you've got the answers. But what we have got is that time and listening and kind of, see what I mean? I just think it's a really interesting um, view of how we approach this sort of stuff and how important and how vital it is to how successful our young people are in the world. That lad is going to get much better grades if you give him a cereal bar in the morning and phone school and try and sort out his little sister than if you yell at him
2: yeah that's my B yes yeah that makes me think of um just as a, a party thought um so Kate McAllister who I've done lots of work with over the years I wrote a book with her and she's an incredible uh, practitioner and she talks about how I think she, I was on a podcast with her once and she was asked like what's the what's the purpose of school um and she said that it should be to help us learn how to live in a world that's made of other people well that's a good one it's great isn't it and, yeah. and and um and she she's so lucid in the way that she talks about this stuff and that's that's sort of it in a nutshell isn't it like like if you look at so many problems that we have politically the, the 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 sort of the rse wars that you were talking about earlier the culture wars more widely it's just like we're not very good at this yet like we're not very good at learning how to live in a world that's made of other people who have different ideas about things different perspectives on things and no, nobody's got the right answer to every situation and we there's no sort of top-down approach as, as much as we'd like the world to be neat and tidy it's not and, and relationships are messy but that's what makes them so fascinating and so important and so centrally you know uh, so so important to our ability to to be mentally healthy we haven't talked about the mental health crisis at all yeah. today but that's a massive sort of elephant in the room, really in this conversation that like that the ability to relate to other people is at the heart of a healthy mind right and and that the 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 sense of disconnection that we have from other people is a huge huge driving force from that, and so this this is becoming this is and rapidly escalating up my list of priorities um r s e turns out is the end of the piece of string uh that, that we need to that we need to address more squarely. It seems like we need much stronger roots into teaching. I'd really love to see a, a training route for, for for PSHE. Why have we not got that? Why I've never really even heard anybody talking about that. But I'm sure that there'd be no shortage of people who are interested in working in this way. Yeah. Certainly not for everyone. We need all kinds of teachers, but I, there's there's loads of teachers who are really passionate about this stuff. And they should be able to to make that a central feature of, of their work.
0: It's one of the questions that I get asked most by kind of six formers. I say, oh, how can I do what you do? Yeah, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's no course they can take. There's no, yeah. you know, they can volunteer for organisations and hope there's, you know, but it's, there's no money in it. There's no sort of... Um,
2: That's not right, is it?
0: Whereas if you've got all these really enthusiastic teachers who came from a relationship, you know, want, that was their central of what they did. You can teach anything from that perspective. It's, you know, if you've got people having a discussion, it's really interesting, really good fun. Um, and not always having the answers is a really nice place to teach from.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, I love that. That's a perfect note to end on. Let's embrace. Sorry, it. I ruined your last ending by telling you another story. <laughs> That's fine. That so nice. It's it another well. good ending to to embrace uncertainty, right? Like to to sort of to to live with uncertainty. That's again cuts to the heart of of the culture wars that we're in. That people sort of seem so so determined to be right and to have the final word. And actually, sometimes the smartest thing you can say is, "I no, don't actually know." Like this is really complicated. Let's sit down and talk about it. Um, love it, well thank you again uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation
0: Oh, I've enjoyed myself, I love talking about this stuff it's been a pleasure chatting to you, so thank you very much for having me
3: Time is a measure of change We don't have much do. Time is a measure of change